Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close, I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm Patrick Medev, your host of Item, and today I'm sitting down with Peter Schiff, and let me tell you something, he makes some bold predictions, he talks about Bitcoin stimulus, and he blasts the Fed. This is one you don't want to miss. Peter Schiff, thanks for being a guest on Valuetainment. Oh, Patrick, uh, thanks for having me on. You know, I caught your interview with uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth, uh, a good interview. I've known her for uh, quite a long time, I guess. We speak at some of the same conferences. Uh, you know, we'll see. I think the next one I'm, I may go to is in New Orleans, and we'll see. If she, we'll see if that one actually happens live. You know, with all the COVID, it's hard to say. But you know, if you see Art laugh again, uh, let him know I'm still waiting for my penny. And, 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 and no, penny. You know, I don't know if you know about that that bet that we made on Cudlow's show back in 2006, but I, he's welched on that bet. So, uh, but he's been saying some decent things recently. You know, I got at least give him a little credit. You know, I've, I've been hard on Art Laffer, but at least recently he's been in the correct camp. He's been critical of the stimulus, of, uh, of the CARES Act, of the PPP. So, you know, better late than never. You, you know, Peter, if we do this, just, just for some of the audience, some of the viewers that don't know who you are, uh, uh, ideas, okay? Where do you position yourself economically if you were to say, I consider myself X, Y, Z. I'm a capitalist. I'm a libertarian. I'm a pro-gold. Can you kind of say that, and then I want to go to a couple of uh, different areas from there. Well, I'm all of those things. I mean, I believe in free market, you okay. know, so which is limited government, uh, sound money. Uh, you know, I believe in the principles that the nation was founded on uh, by by our founding fathers, um, and you know, laissez-faire. Uh, you know, the the idea of America as uh, a nation of individuals, rugged individuals, self-reliant. Uh, the idea of the concept of federalism, uh, where the federal government is supposed to live within its constitutional restrictions, where the federal government does very little. It's pre- predominantly uh, concerned about international affairs, uh, keeping us safe from uh, you know, international threats. Uh, but all the domestic affairs are left to state and local governments. Uh, so the federal government is very small, does very little. Uh, and, and even the state governments don't do a lot. Um, and, but, but obviously, we have the complete opposite of that now. We have a very powerful, a very strong a central government, uh, the antithesis of what the founders envisioned for this nation. Uh, we don't have sound money at all. Uh, we have fiat money, just you know, paper money they create out of thin air that has no value. We have more of a centrally planned economy uh, where we rely on bureaucrats to make decisions uh, about what they think is best instead of relying on Adam Smith and the invisible hand and, and, and the wonders of, of the free market. And, you know, the problem is we have interjected so much socialism into the market-based economy that we once had, the capitalist economy, and we've created tremendous problems, particularly the problem that we're in right now. Uh, but what happens is whenever the government uh, mixes socialism in with capitalism and creates a problem, it's always capitalism that gets the blame for the problems that socialism created. And then the argument is always, well, we need even more socialism, which is what's happening now when everybody says, oh, we need to bail everybody out. We need to stimulate the economy. Everybody needs government money. 
the reason that the economy was so sick is not the coronavirus. It's because of everything the government did before the coronavirus. So the government crippled the economy. The solution isn't to find a bigger crutch, a government crutch. It's let's eliminate all these government programs, make government smaller so that the free market can solve these problems. But we're doing the opposite. We have made government much bigger, which is why this recession, depression is going to be much deeper than it otherwise would have been had the government actually uh, you know, made itself smaller and reduced the burden that it imposes on the economy instead of what it's doing now. Peter, why do you think, two things, by the way, one, uh, uh, the government smaller, we'll get into that in a minute. But the first thing you said was, you know, when, when we face problems like this, the immediate reaction is to blame capitalism, where in reality, socialism, the reason why, why, what caused it. Why do you think that argument of blaming capitalism is so attractive? Well, because it's, the, it's politicians, right? Politicians want to get votes. And the way they get votes is by promising to do something, to give somebody something that they don't have. Uh, and, and so if a politician says, look, the solution is let the free market work, uh, there's no votes in that. And of course, you know, Wall Street, everybody that, that, you know, that made mistakes and borrowed too much money, uh, they all want to get bailed out. They don't want to lose money. I mean, this is what happened after the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, I made a name for myself on national television for four or five years predicting the 2008 financial crisis. And I said it was going to result from the bursting of the real estate bubble and all of the debts that would go bad when that bubble popped. So I talked about the problems in the financial institutions. I talked about the, the, the bankruptcy of Fannie and Freddie and what all that would mean. But I blamed both the housing bubble that I was witnessing and the financial crisis that I was forecasting on the Federal Reserve, on Alan Greenspan, for his response to the 2001 recession, the bursting of the dot-com bubble, 9-11, I said the Fed lowered interest rates too much when they went to 1%. They kept them there too long, and they raised them too slowly. And during that time, they were inflating a housing bubble that was also uh, being fueled by the government agencies, Fannie and Freddie, both guaranteeing uh, mortgages and buying up mortgages. And also, we were fueling an international demand for mortgage-backed securities by keeping interest rates so low, everybody was stretching for yield. And as the Fed kept interest rates so low and real estate prices got too high, consumers were levering up, they were borrowing against their houses and buying more stuff. So our trade deficits were going up, hitting record highs. And then what was happening was all of our trading partners were recycling their surpluses back into the mortgage bonds uh, and to get yield. So we had this huge bubble that the Fed inflated in combination with the moral hazard of Fannie and Freddie. And I said, this is going to be a disaster. When the bubble pops, it's going to be the worst recession since the Great Depression. We're going to have trillion dollar deficits. We're going to have 10% unemployment. Everything that I said was going to happen, happened. In fact, you could watch on YouTube uh, my mortgage banker speech from 2006. I spoke in front of 3,000 mortgage bankers laying out the financial crisis, the housing collapse, uh, the subprime. I actually went there raising money for the hedge fund that we had set up to short the subprime market in 06. So I, I really knew what was going to happen. But then the more important part of it, and I put it all in a book. You can see the, the book Crash Proof. Uh, uh, you know, on my bookshelf. The original one was not 2.0, but Crash Proof that came out 
in February of 07, but was written largely in, at the end of 05, the first half of 06, right? The book was finished by, by the middle of 06, and it just took a while to, uh, to, to come out. But what I, what I predicted was not only were we going to have this financial crisis, right, but that after the bubble popped, the government and the Fed, instead of acknowledging their fault in inflating this bubble and doing the right thing, they would double down on the failed policies. They were going to slash interest rates. They were going to print all this money, and they were going to uh, reflate the bubble or attempt to reflate the bubble. I, I thought that they would fail in their attempt. I thought the foreign currency markets and the gold market would, would put a stop to the party, uh, but I was wrong on that in that we actually succeeded in doing something that I didn't think was possible, but we actually inflated a bigger bubble than the one that popped in 2008. And that's the one that just popped. And in fact, the air was coming out of that bubble last year. I predicted when the Federal Reserve first announced that it was going to end QE and that it was going to normalize rates. I said at that time that the Fed was lying, that it could do neither, that it would never be able to normalize rates, it would never be able to shrink its balance sheet, that if it tried, it would have to abort the efforts prematurely, that it would go back to zero, that QE4 would be bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined. I was saying that for years. In fact, on day one, when Ben Bernanke uh, went to Congress, when they first uh, said, hey, are you monetizing the debt? And Ben Bernanke said, no, 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 this is all temporary. We're not monetizing the debt. We're not you know, a permanent source of government funding. It's an emergency. As soon as the emergency is over, we're going to sell these bonds. I said at the time that Ben Bernanke was lying, that the Fed could never sell those bonds, that they had checked us into a monetary roach motel, uh, that they could get in, they could never get out. You know, we'd have more QEs than Rocky movies. So I was right about all that. And now we're at the end game. We're at the real crash. That was the topic of my, my, my uh, later book because we can't kick this can down the road anymore. I mean, what the politicians want to do is they never want to deal with the problem. They want to postpone the consequences by kicking the can down the road, even if doing that makes the problems worse and makes the consequences even more severe, well, let me they ask don't you care this. about that because they'll deal with that in the future. And then when they catch up to the can, they kick it again. The problem is we are out of road at this point. They don't know that yet. They're, gonna, they're trying to kick it down again, but this time we're going to get a dollar collapse. We're going to get a sovereign debt crisis. The party is going to end uh, all the inflation that they're creating now, which is unprecedented in scale, right? They've done it before, but just not in this scale. The amount of inflation, which is the money printing, uh, is off the charts. The deficits are exploding in a way that I've never seen. Uh, uh, and this is going to end in complete catastrophe. And people are complacent because we got away with it after the 2008 financial crisis. We're not going to get away with it again. So, so then here's a question. How much, uh, I asked the question saying, why do they constantly blame capitalism and, and socialism is, what is the benefit of doing that? Why, why, why blame an economical system that's, that's proven, that's worked to constantly say black, you know, capitalism's getting a black eye, capitalism's getting a black eye, capitalism doesn't work. We need a new form of capitalism. 
How much well, of that argument is right and how much of it is just, you know, finding something to blame? We don't need a new form of capitalism. We need to go back to capitalism. The, the type of capitalism that we've been practicing has been the problem because it's capitalism in name only, right? It's socialism or maybe more accurately fascism, if you understand the true meaning, because uh, fascism is a form of socialism. So is uh, communism. And what we've been doing is more of a Mussolini-type fascism, uh, obviously, than communism. But that is the problem with the economy, that economic system. But A, in order to do the right thing, first you have to have the politicians and the central bankers admit that they did the wrong thing in the past, which they never want to do. They never want to fess up to their mistakes and say, we did this, right? We interfered with capitalism and that's why we have this problem. So number one, they never want to do that. But if they finally embrace capitalism and say, okay, we're going to swallow this bitter tasting medicine because ultimately recessions is the free market's way of fixing the mistakes that the government and the central banks create because the mistakes are made during the bubble, during the boom, right? Everybody feels great during the boom, but that's when all the malinvestments are made, all the misallocations or resources are uh, occur. Then when there's a bust, that's the free market's attempt to restore order, to create balance in the economy so it's viable and sustainable. Uh, and so you have to allow a recession to run its course even though it's painful, even though it means people lose jobs, investors lose money, uh, you know, loans go into default, companies that are not viable go bankrupt. And what happens in that cleansing process is that resources are freed up to be reallocated more efficiently and more productively. That includes labor and, and, and capital and land. Uh, but that process obviously is painful to certain people. Uh, and, you know, in, in the immediate, you don't know uh, how it's going to end. And so the politicians are under tremendous pressure to do something about it. Oh, people are unemployed. Let's provide them with money. Businesses are going to fail. Let's bail them out. Instead of doing the right thing by allowing the businesses to fail, right, and, and allowing uh, all the, 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 you know, the, the reallocation of labor and capital, they interfere. But the interference is what makes it worse. It, it exacerbates uh, the, de the downturn. And it, me it means that we don't get a real recovery. The recovery that we had following the 2008 financial crisis was phony. It was just a bigger bubble than the one that popped. Had we done the right thing in 08 and let uh, real estate prices continue to fall, let foreclosures happen, let banks fail and not bail them out, let the bad actors be punished, right? Let new owners step up and buy in bankruptcy a lot of these companies that were so mismanaged and allowed, you know, consumption to come down and savings to go up, which is the underlying problem that the Fed created is a nation where we have too much debt and not enough savings. So instead of allowing uh, the savings to be rebuilt and balance sheets to be improved, we inflated an even bigger bubble than the one that popped. And so we didn't have a real recovery. And that's why the economy is so vulnerable now to this uh, uh, COVID-19 crisis. Because as I said, the economy was sick long before uh, the virus infected it. And the air was already coming out of the bubble because the Fed tried to do something that was impossible, which was normalize interest rates with an abnormal amount of debt. They got everybody you know, hooked on the, the drug of cheap money 
and then tried to withdraw the drug from the market. And then obviously, we, we went into withdrawal at the end of 2018. That's when the Fed came back and said, okay, more QE, we're going back to QE, we're going back to rate cuts. But then we got the, the coronavirus, and what everybody is focusing on is the virus. The virus is the pin. The problem is the massive bubble that that pin pricked. And in fact, it, I said it was already kind of pricked. That pin just put a gaping hole in that bubble. And now the air is coming gushing out. But the reason that the economy is so vulnerable is because we're broke and levered to the hilt. The reason that nobody can do without uh, income for a few weeks or a few months is because everybody has debt to service, right? Corporations are levered to the max. They've been borrowing all this cheap money from the Fed. They've been using it to buy up their overpriced stock. So they didn't have any, any, any savings. Individual households are leveraged to the max on cheap consumer credit. They got mortgage debt, student loans, auto loans, credit card debt. They're living paycheck to paycheck. You take that paycheck to, away, they can't pay their rent, they can't pay their mortgage, they can't pay their debts. The same thing with local governments, a state, a municipalities have been uh, you know, making promises they couldn't keep. They've been borrowing all this money. They have underfunded pensions. They got nothing saved for a rainy day. Then it pours. So the states are broke. And then the federal government, of course, is we've been running massive deficits even when the economy was supposedly recovering. So everybody is broke, nobody has savings, and then this crisis comes, right? And, and a lot of people wanna talk about, well, this is like World War II. It's the opposite of World War II because when World War II hit, nobody got bailed out, nobody got a stimulus check, Every got, everybody got a bill for World War II. First of all, 16 million men had a fight they had to leave their homes and they had to go to Europe and Japan. Uh, but the people who didn't fight had to finance the war. The, the government massively increased taxes when the war began. Uh, oh, fewer than 3% of the population even paid income taxes uh, before World War II. Uh, once it started, better than 30% of the people started to pay income taxes uh, because we imposed withholding taxes for the first time as part of the victory tax. But not only did we triple taxes, on the middle class to pay for the war. But the government borrowed money directly from the middle class by selling war bonds. And so everybody stopped spending and was giving all their money to the government in either taxes or in direct loans. And where were all the customers? Where were all the businesses who now had a big drop in their sales, right? I mean, restaurants, I mean, who was eating in restaurants when you know everybody was fighting a war, where everybody was you know loaning money to the government? I mean. All of these businesses suffered. Consumer spending imploded uh, during the uh, Second World War, yet not a single business got bailed out. No, no, no. The, the government relied on the people to pay for that war. Now we're all, we all believe that the, the government needs to bail out the people. The government needs to bail out individuals. The government has to bail out the states. The government has to bail out uh, corporations. With what money? The government doesn't have any money. It's the people that support the government, not the other way around. But we're pretending that the government can support the people by using a printing press. That all we have to do is print money and nobody has to work, nobody has to produce. We can have all this stuff for free. Well, we're about to find out the hard way that the most expensive way to pay for government is through inflation, through printing money. 
That's what we're doing, and we're about to relive uh, the lessons of history because uh, a lot of countries have tried this before, and it has ended in disaster every time it's been tried. Peter, let me ask you this. So in, in the world of bodybuilding, I ask bodybuilders, tell me what are the most important qualities for somebody to win Mr. Olympia? And they'll say, number one is you got to have good genetics. It's number one. If you don't have it, forget it. Anybody can go out there and do it. You're not going to win Mr. Olympia. Then they say number two is uh, diet. Then they'll go number three is training. Then they'll go number four is cardio. Whatever they'll tell me yeah. on, a height is one of them. You yeah. can't be too tall because your muscles are long, et cetera, et cetera. When, when somebody, when the average person turns on the news, they'll say, oh, my gosh, it's, you know, big government's the problem. No, it's bailout. No, we got to look at the GDP. No, we got to look at our debt ratio. No, we got to look at the gold standard. No, we got to look at the fiat currency. No, we got to look at, you know, this. If, if the average person's watching this to say, what are the most important numbers to look at? You know, Gary Keller wrote about the one thing, like you always go to the one thing that's the most important, important thing to look at. What, what are the most important numbers to look at that can predict yeah. what's going to be happening in the future? What would you say some of those data, some of those numbers are? Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention that in a second. But first, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the bodybuilder and how to, and getting in shape, and that's a good analogy because I often... Uh, use that to you know describe the economy, because the, the government is saying, "Hey, we're going to win, Mr. Olympia, and we're just we're not going to train at all, we're not going to exercise at all, and we're going to stuff our face with junk food." Yet expect to win that that competition, because you know when when somebody is out of shape and overweight, the solution is not to eat more, <laughs> you know, it's to go on a diet, it's to exercise. But if you go to a person who is out of shape and is and, and doesn't eat well, and you say, look, you know, this is what you need to do, uh, they don't want to do that because it's going to temporarily, uh, you know, cause some discomfort in their daily routine. I got to stop eating what I want. I got to wake up early and I got to exercise. I don't want to do that. That's hard. I'd rather just, you know, lie in bed, right? And, and so um, that's the problem. The economy, you know, the, the Fed is, you know, the, we're out of shape. And, and what the Fed said is just eat more junk food because it feels good to do that rather than doing the right thing. I mean, the right thing right now for the economy is for the government to shrink, right? The government is a burden on the economy that everybody must bear. So the correct solution in a recession is to shrink government, cut government spending and free up those resources that were being uh, consumed by government and free them back into the economy to be used productively. So you cut government spending, you cut government regulation, and you let interest rates go up. So when interest rates go up, we get more savings. And when you have more savings, you have more capital investment. That's what the economy needs, more savings and more investment. We don't need more debt. We don't need more consumption. That was part of the problem, excess consumption financed by debt. And we don't need to make government bigger. Government was already too big but we are doing the wrong thing right now, right? We, we are simply increasing the problem. We had a, a, a debt crisis in 2008. What was the government solution? To have more debt. Well, if we had a crisis in 08 because we had too much debt, and if we have so much more debt now, how much worse is this crisis gonna be? I mean, Greenspan only kept rates at 1% for about a year and a half, and then it took about another year and a half to get back up to five. We had rates at zero for six, seven years. We never got them back up to normal. It took like three years to get back to two, two and a half percent. 
And then it took a year to get back to zero, and we're never going off zero now until the market forces us, which answers your question. What do people have to look at? You got to look at the price of gold, which is already going up. But at some point, it's going to go up much faster. You got to look at the exchange rate of the U.S. dollar uh, versus other currencies. Now, right now, the dollar is stable, right? But it's not going to stay stable for long. At some point, the dollar is going to fall. And then you got to look at long-term interest rates, right? Wait for long-term interest rates to really start spiking higher. That is ultimately going to happen. Now, if you wait for those three things to happen, a big move up in gold, a plunge in the dollar, and a sharp increase in long-term interest rates, it's too late to do anything about it financially. I mean, you've missed the boat. What you've got to do now, and what I've done personally, what I'm helping my clients do, is get out of U.S. financial assets, get out of the dollar, get out of U.S. bonds before that crisis. But once the market finally reacts, right? Ben Bernanke, or not Ben Bernanke, Jerome Powell, uh, yesterday said that now is not the time. He was at a press conference after they left rates at zero. And he was asked about the debt. Are you worried about the debt, which is exploding at an unprecedented rate? And his response was, no, I'm not worried. Now's not the time to worry about the debt. Of course, he's never worried about the debt. That's the problem. And we never want to fix the debt when times are good. And then when times are bad, we say we can't worry about the debt now. And so we got to make the debt bigger and bigger. But when the market finally worries about it, because, you know, if the central bank is worried about the debt, then that's good. Maybe the markets don't have to. But if the chairman of the Federal Reserve says the Fed is not worried about the debt and actually is encouraging the government to take on more debt, that's when the markets ought to really worry about that debt because it's going to run out of control. And when the markets put a break on the debt, right, by we're not buying these treasuries, we're not holding these dollars, and you start to see uh, the dollar crashing, uh, bond prices moving up, right, the stagflation really comes fully into play, then that's when the party's over, right? That's when the Fed is forced to make the decision that it has been reluctant to make for a decade or two, and it keeps kicking the can down the road. But when it finally has no choice, because we're about to see a sovereign debt crisis, we're about to see hyperinflation, where the value of the dollar is completely destroyed, right? And everybody, you know, wants to think that we're going to get all this government for free, right? We're not raising taxes, we're cutting taxes, but everybody's getting a bailout, everybody's getting a check, and nobody is asking, who's paying for it, right? Government has to be paid for. Now, the government can fund its operations honestly through taxation, where it actually takes money away from some people and gives it to other people, or it can do it dishonestly the way it's doing now through inflation. Have the Federal Reserve create money out of thin air and just give it to people, just spend it into circulation. But when the Fed does that, it's not, you're not getting that government for free. That means that people that already have dollars in savings, in annuities, in pensions, uh, you know, un under their mattress, wherever you have dollars, those dollars lose their purchasing power. And that purchasing power is transferred to the people who are receiving the government money. So instead of the government taking your money, the government is taking the purchasing power from your money. So that's who's going to get paid. I mean, you're, you're, going to, you're going to be stuck with this bill. If you, if you have savings, if you've got a portfolio of bonds, or you've got an annuity or cash value in an insurance policy, or you're working for wages, the value of what you earn is about to collapse in that the cost of living is about to explode, and that's how we're paying for this. But the choice that the Federal Reserve is going to have to make 
when the markets finally take away the punch bowl, that the Fed should have taken away on its own. But when the markets force this decision on the Fed, then the Fed's going to have to do one of two things. Let interest rates go way up. And they're going to have to go much higher than they would have gone had the Fed let them go up before. Remember, when, when, Green, when, when Volcker did the right thing, who was the last Fed chairman to ever do the right thing, the market put his, pushed interest rates up to 20%. I would say that they're going to go higher this time than 20%. Now, imagine that because we couldn't even survive 2.5%. The Fed had to start cutting. Imagine what happens to this over-leveraged economy at 20% rates. I mean, even at 10% rates or 5% rates, imagine what happens. So what would actually happen is massive default on an unprecedented uh, uh, scale, including the U.S. government. If the Federal Reserve does the right thing, the U.S. government will be forced to default on treasuries. It will not be able to pay the interest on the debt. It will not be able to, to you know, obviously pay the principal. And it will have to default on its commitments to pay people social security benefits, <clears throat> Medicare benefits. I mean, it's going to be a wave of defaults uh, on an unprecedented level, massive bankruptcies, massive collapses. That's if the Fed does the right thing. But, if that's, it the, but that's the problem, right though. I mean, if you think about that, here, here's what, if you think about that, this is what it seems like is happening. Uh, uh, you said gold, exchange of rate, uh, U.S., obviously the currency, and a long-term interest rates. And, and I'll get to a second part of the question here is in order for the person to do the right thing, so let's just say we know what the right thing is to campaign on, okay? So imagine I'm running for office, and this is my campaign. We need to stop spending money. We need to have the 40% uh, of businesses that are too, you know, people that don't have the finances in order. Some of these guys need to get filtered out. We need to figure out a way to pay off our debt, and in doing so, we need to raise the taxes. We need, no one's going to vote for this person. Well, so meaning, I, I, look, yes, Freedom, capitalism, liberty is a lousy campaign slogan. People don't vote for freedom. They vote for free stuff. That is the problem. Look, the founding fathers knew this. That's why America was created as a republic. They knew if we were a democracy, we would collapse. So they protected us from democracy with the republican form of government that they created. And they, and they bound the government in the chains of the Constitution. And it worked for a long time. We were incredibly free throughout the 19th century. I mean, the most prosperous period of, Ameri of American history, of world history, was probably the end of the Civil War to the beginning of the First World War. That's when we had the smallest government, the purest gold standard. We really were, you know, following the Constitution, and, and we prospered. But yes, you know, it is very difficult when now everybody is voting, and the government in particular has crippled so many people, uh, and now they have the crutch. And people don't realize that they're crippled because of the government. All they see is the government offering a crutch, and they want that crutch. And look, you know, you look at look at the example of student loans. I mean, this is one of the most obvious examples of a government-created problem. I ran for Senate in Connecticut in 2010, and you know, I was uh, against student loans. I wanted to abolish all government-guaranteed student loans and all student loans. And you know, before the government got involved in student loans, which it didn't always do. It really started with the GI Bill in the Second World War, but that was just, you know, to, to help the soldiers who were returning from the war. They really started getting involved in the 60s. So before that, you know, if you wanted to go to college, you just paid for it. And it wasn't expensive. College, believe it or not, was not expensive before the government came in to help make it affordable. 
if your parents were relatively rich, they just wrote a check. You know, if they were upper class, you know, if your parents were lower middle class or middle class, maybe you got a summer job. That's what my dad did. My dad went to college. He, he grew up, his parents were relatively poor. Uh, he worked his way through college, like most of his friends, by waiting tables over the summer. That's it. He graduated college, no debt, right? And he, you know, and, and, and he lived away from home, but he was able to earn enough just getting tips on a summer job uh, to, to put himself through college. But what happened is a bunch of politicians came to the students in the 1960s and said, you shouldn't have to work over the summers. You should enjoy your summers. You should be going to the beach and having fun. We'll let you borrow the money, right, to go to college. And you just pay it back after you graduate when you have a better job and you can earn more money. And the students were like, oh, that sounds great. I can have fun this summer. I don't have to work. The government's going to give me this loan. Now, of course, without the government guarantees, the students couldn't borrow the money because they had no collateral. What bank is going to loan money to an 18-year-old? You know, so uh, they couldn't have got the loans. But once the government guaranteed the loans, then any, anybody could get the loans. So the minute the, the, the kids had all this money to go to college and bid up the prices, the universities were like, oh, wow, we can really raise prices now because the students can borrow the money from the government and, and, and give it to us. So the minute the government started uh, guaranteeing student loans, tuition has started to explode. And then as the tuition got higher and higher, the government had to provide bigger and bigger loans to pay for it. And then it became a self-perpetuating spiral. The more money the government made available to students, the higher the tuition got to the point that now the students are graduating with a crippling amount of debt. Whereas they used to graduate debt-free when the government wasn't involved at all, now they're graduating with massive debt. And the irony of it is you see these Democrats, right, in these debates pointing to this huge problem without admitting that the government is the only reason those student loans exist. Without those student loans, college would be cheap <laughs> and students wouldn't have any debt. But because of government interference, the cost of a college degree went through the roof. And because everybody has a college degree now, they're worth nothing. Before the government was involved, most people didn't go to college. A high school degree was all you needed. Now, because everybody goes, you need a, high, you need a college degree to do what you used to be able to do with a high school degree. Now you've got to get a master's or a PhD. But by the time you borrow all the money to get that and you're in school into your early 30s, right, you're in debt up to your eyebrows. All this is because of government. Now, what are these guys saying? Are they saying, oh, we really screwed up here? We had good intentions, uh, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And now we need to get government out of the student loan business completely. We need to have free market capitalism working so that colleges are under competitive pressures to control their costs to get customers like everybody. No, no, no. Now the solution is completely nationalize it. Have the government pay for college. Let's make college free. Let's forgive all the loans. So now they want to make college even more expensive by making it free, right? The most expensive things are the stuff you get from the government for free. So they first they jacked up the cost by subsidizing it. Now they want to make it even more expensive by providing it for free. They did the same thing with housing. You know, they did the same thing with healthcare. Every aspect of the economy that the government gets involved in, they screw it up. They make the price go up and the quality go down. Whereas when the free market is involved, the opposite happens. Prices go down and, and quality goes up. But I, I got to finish the point I was making on the choice that the Fed has. Either they do the right thing and let interest rates go up and the whole house of cards that they've been building crashes down, 
or they don't do that because it's too politically difficult and they just print money. They just continue the QE, they bail out everybody and they destroy the dollar and then the dollar is worthless. And then if they do that, right, a hyperinflation is much worse economically than just a massive economic collapse, right? The pain that that will inflict is going to be far greater, but because it may happen six months or a year later or two years later, who knows, that may be the course that we end up uh, taking. So again, everything you said, let's just say common sense. Let's take common sense. Make the government smaller, you know, uh, 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 you know, figure out a way to not spend the kind of money with school loans where the government's not involved in the school loans. Let the private folks do it. You don't get involved. So we don't have to have the, what's the number today? $1 trillion, a, a trillion, uh, 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 one, four or one, it's uh, somewhere around there, a trillion, two or a trillion, three, we have college debt, right? Oh yeah. Everything it's like, saying, it's more than that. Yeah. Let's just say it's everything you're saying, common sense, somebody watching says, okay, th this makes sense. I get it. But I want to go solutions. I want to go next phase. I talked to a guy at AIG. We were having a debate because I, I've been asking these guys to make some adjustments on their technology. And they keep saying, Pat, you know, we're working on it. We're working on it. This was like four years ago. Finally, one of the guys who's a stud, quality guy, trust him. He said, look, you have to realize who you're doing business with. I said, what's that? He said, this is AIG. I said, I know. I've been doing business with you guys for a decade now. He says, we're so big that when you want to launch a new adjustment to a software or a technology, it's not like a small business owner entrepreneur that's nimble to say, let's make the change. It's going to take, you know, 60 yeah. days, 90 but, days. Yeah. Higher. Here's where I'm going with this. Let me wrap up the question here. We're saying, okay, let's make the government smaller. You got seven and a half, eight million employees that are government employees. You got the military. You got all these people that are working. You got all these different EP, all these departments that you have. How do you make the government smaller on one term or two terms? So again, this leads to the next question is, you got one term, two term president, then you got Republican president, Bush senior, then you got Clinton, then you got Bush, then you got Obama, then you got Trump, then you got, you know, uh, say uh, uh, Cuomo gets elected. One philosophy doesn't stay long enough for us to be able to pay off this debt. It's about what campaigns get, gets us reelected. Yeah. So well, how we I mean, the debt's not going to be paid off. That, we have to be honest about that. We can't even solve the problems unless we're honest about the situation. So the debts are not going to be repaid. The question is, is it better to inflate them away or default? I think default is better. I think a legitimate bankruptcy and restructuring is better. Hey, look, we loaded all the kids up with debt. Yes, students have much too much debt. We cannot expect them to repay it. But we can't solve the problem unless we first say, okay, no more government involvement in college. We, it was a mistake. Uh, and, and, and colleges are going to have to compete in the free market for students. No government guaranteed loans. No government direct loans. We, we have to go back to capitalism uh, in order for the solutions to work. The solutions will work. Now, People are going to lose money because if loans are not repaid, then the lenders are going to suffer a loss. That has to happen. But, you know, when, when you talk about making government smaller, yes, the government's going to have to lay off a lot of government workers. That doesn't mean those people are going to be unemployed forever. That means the resources that were required to employ them are now freed up back to the private sector. The private sector is going to use those resources more efficiently and more productively than the government. So whenever the government cuts spending, right, and, and, and including laying off government workers, now the private sector has more money 
to employ those workers productively. In fact, a lot of government workers, not only are they not productive, they actually work reducing the productivity of everybody else. So it's like the people who are actually producing, they are less productive because of all these bureaucrats getting in their way. So, you know, the bureaucrats are riding in the wagon and the rest of us are trying to pull it. If the people who are riding in the wagon not only jump out but help us pull, right, then we're going to make a lot more progress. That wagon is going to be a lot easier. We're going to be able to take it a lot further. So there's, there's a lot of light at the end of a free market tunnel. But first, you've got to get over that hump of, of letting voters know that, you know, yes, if you, if you diet and exercise, I know it's not going to be fun, uh, but you're going to be healthier. You're going to have a better life. You're going to live longer. Uh, you know, if you just do this, if you just follow this program. So capitalism uh, is going to take us to where we want to go. Socialism never will. It's, it's a false promise that, oh, we're just going to solve this problem with more government. Uh, but, you know, the, the other problem is, you know, so many Americans have been brainwashed in government schools. They don't understand free market capitalism. They just see the problems in the economy and assume that they're a function of free market capitalism when they're not. And they think that more government is the solution to a problem that they don't understand was created by government. And by making government bigger, we're just going to make the problems bigger. Yeah, but that still doesn't answer my question for you. The, 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 uh, the, the question about you got something this big to want to rehaul and change. It's not a small thing to change. It's a, it's a massive, massive thing to change. And to have one president we elect who gets up there and comes up with this campaign to say, let's do this. The number of opposition is so massive for somebody to do this, to have so many, even whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a third party, whatever you want to call it. There are so many people on each camp that are relying on lobbyists, that are relying on these people on the yes. back that are. How do you how do you how do you fight those guys? Yeah, now? it's look, the founding fathers refer to them as factions, and that's basically what we have. Look, there is an entire establishment that is feeding off the status quo. And so they want to perpetuate it. And they're basically like sucking the blood out of the, the economy, right? You have certain people getting rich, bleeding the rest of the nation. That's why you have this growing divide. Uh, between the average American or the poor and the super rich, this is not a failure of capitalism. Yes, in capitalism, there's always going to be income inequality, and that's fine. But what we have now is an extreme, and it's not because of capitalism. It's not a failure of capitalism. It's a failure to have capitalism. It's government that is doing this. Now, the people who are benefiting from these policies have a vested interest to maintain them, and they will pay the politicians in, in one way or the other in order to perpetuate this scheme. And look, we elected Donald Trump, right? An outsider, not a politician, who said a lot of really good things on the camp train trail about the phony nature of the recovery, about the bubble. He was anti-Fed. You know, this is cheap money. This is all artificial. I'm going to drain the swamp. He actually came at this like, yes, I am an outsider. I'm not a politician. I'm going to go to Washington, clean house. And then as soon as he got to Washington, he became part of the very swamp that he wanted to drain. He presided over a massive increase in government spending. Uh, so government got bigger under Donald Trump. He, he went from being a Fed critic to a Fed cheerleader. In fact, the only thing he criticized the Fed for was not printing enough money, right? Not, not, not cutting rates enough. I mean, he, he criticized the Fed for being too easy as a candidate. And then he said they were too tight 
when he was president. He wanted the Fed to do everything he criticized it for. So he became the, the, the leader of that swamp. And yes, we got some tax cuts, but those tax cuts were a fraud because tax cuts have to do with cutting government spending. The, the cost of government is what it spends. So government spending is taxation. Every dollar the government spends is a dollar that we have to fund. And so when presidents uh, sign budgets that increase government spending, they are increasing taxation, regardless of what they do with the income tax rate. Spending is taxation. Now, how are they going to pay for it? Are they going to tax us today? Are they going to borrow the money, which means they're going to tax us even more tomorrow because now we have to pay the taxes to cover the interest? Or is the Federal Reserve going to monetize the debt? Are they going to print more money, which means we pay for government through debasement of the currency, through inflation? Now, we have not felt the full weight of the inflation tax because we've been able to export it because the dollar has functioned as the world's reserve currency, we're able to run these massive trade deficits and we can export all the money that we're printing and we can get products in return. So that's kept the lid on consumer prices and allowed the Fed to pretend that even though they're creating inflation at an unprecedented scale, that we don't have any inflation, that there's not enough of it. But that's why I said, you gotta watch the dollar, you gotta watch the treasuries, the gold market. This thing is gonna implode and it's gonna implode soon. The party is gonna end, the dollar is gonna crash and a tsunami of inflation that we've been exporting uh, for years and years is gonna come hitting us, uh, our shores, and we're gonna see the cost of living go through the roof. And that is the cost of government. And then once the world no longer accepts the dollar and we can't run these huge trade deficits, we're stuck with all the money we print, then we're going to feel the full weight of that inflation tax. Which means what? Then, then we're going to be open to the idea of changing? Because every single, this goes back to what you said earlier when you said every time there's a problem, it's another uh, avenue, like even right now. Uh, you see, this is why we need a stimulus check. This is why the... Uh, a uh, plan that Andrew Yang talked about is effective. We can't afford to pay people $1,000 a month. We can't afford to pay people $2,000 a month. If we're spending trillions on a military, why can't we spend money on uh, uh, spending, uh, sending checks to people? Yeah, if, but, we can, yeah. if we can bail out these big companies, you know, they need to know the whole concept about social. I know, too, but yeah, it, the idea is two wrongs make a right, but they don't. And, and we couldn't. Uh, the bailouts are a mistake. I mean, just because we made the mistake of bailing out the banks in 08 doesn't mean that we should repeat the mistake by bailing out the airlines or the hotels. Uh, and just because we made the mistake of bailing out Wall Street doesn't mean we compound the mistake by bailing out Main Street. Why Let's do we bail, bail out, out nobody? But why do we bail out? Like, why do we bail out the too big to fail? What is the. Well, because reason? obviously there's two reasons. One is the politics of it, you know, from. They're going to, the industries that get bailed out are going to recycle some of that bailout money and line the pockets of the politicians that voted to bail them out, right? I mean, that's a quid pro quo that's going to happen. But also when it comes to economics, right, you have the seen and you have the unseen, the effects. And when a government bails out a business, the immediate benefits to those who receive the bailouts are there. The company is there, the jobs are saved. Uh, and so, and the people who benefit from the bailout, uh, they, they are known and, and they will vote for you. The, but what you don't see are the negative consequences that are widely dispersed throughout the economy where there's no political constituency 
for that. But let's take one of these industries that get bailed out, whether it's airlines, right? Let's say we didn't bail out airlines or, you know, any hotels or any of these companies. The way the politicians want to present it is that if we didn't bail out these industries, they would disappear. Like, oh, we need airlines. We need hotels. We can't just let these countries go bank, these industries go bankrupt. How will we get around, right? See, that's the lie of the bailout. If the government didn't bail out the companies, they would go through a normal bankruptcy. During a bankruptcy, the companies don't stop operating, right? <laughs> they continue to operate. What happens is they don't have to pay their debts anymore, which is why they're in bankruptcy because of all the money they borrowed. But they go through a bankruptcy and who gets wiped out? The common stockholders, the unsecured creditors. There are investors who lose. But the businesses, to the extent that they have value, survive. And new owners come in. And more importantly, they're going to be more responsible than the owners who failed. And the companies are not going to have all the debt. The debt gets wiped out. So now that the businesses no longer have all the debt, they can be more efficient. They can offer a more competitive product. They can lower prices. Maybe they can pay better wages because they're not hampered with all this debt. Instead, we're keeping these companies alive by loading up with even more debt. So they're going to be even less efficient. And some companies need to shrink. You know, the, the government is saying we can't, we have to make sure that companies don't fire any workers. Why? What if they need to fire workers? What if they have too many workers? What, that's why they're not profitable because they, they have to downsize their workforce to make the business competitive and reflect the free market demand for the products they're making or the services they're providing. If we keep payrolls bloated, that is a waste of labor resources. We're squandering those resources. We need to free up that labor to go work someplace else where the market would direct it. But now we're creating these zombie companies that are wards of the state and the cost to society of subsidizing these businesses far exceeds the benefits to the people who are being bailed out. But again, that's the unseen consequence of government interference. Let the free market function and we will have an optimal allocation of resources and we will all collectively benefit from a higher standard of living. But we have the government interfering and diverting resources from where the market wants them to where the politics demand Everybody suffers because we have a lower quality of living, a lower standard of living, because we're increasing uh, production costs and making the economy less efficient. So let's just say we were to make that adjustment. Let's say we are open to it. Let's say we get somebody that's strong enough that can present that to the American people. And let's just say he can convince 51% of people to say, I'm with it. I'm with it. Uh, let's go through this process of allowing the too big to fail, to fail. Uh, let's, let's go through the process of you know, me going back to maybe I can do 100% financing on a home. Maybe it goes to 60% financing on a home. If you don't have 40% of down payment on a house, you probably shouldn't own a house. You probably should rent a house. Let's just say we go through. Yeah, the Alec, who benefits, right? Who benefits from government policy to guarantee mortgages? It's actually not the person who's buying the house. It's the person who has a house to sell because by guaranteeing mortgages, um, the government is helping to prop up real estate prices. If there was no government guarantee mortgages, right? If individuals had to convince the bank to loan them money based on their own credit quality, their own ability to repay, the banks would not be willing to loan as much money and they would want more collateral. They wouldn't give you a mortgage 
with 3% down or 5% down, they would want 20, 25% down, right? And, and so if that happened, real estate prices would collapse, right? So people would still be able to buy houses. They just wouldn't have to borrow nearly as much money to do it because the price would be lower. So maybe you can't afford a 20% down payment when the house you want to buy is 300,000, but if the house drops to 100,000, you could afford to pay 20%, right? You won't have all this debt. The beneficiary of the policy is the guy who already owns the house who wants to sell it. He can sell it for a much higher price if the government's going to guarantee the mortgage of the buyer. But then you have a bubble. You have a phony real estate market. I want to have a real real estate market that reflects mark the free market, not government subsidies, uh, because the government now has to keep this, this whole pyramid going uh, with, with, with more and more debt. But yet it is going to be a very impossible uh, you know, political battle, because right now, right, the Republicans have already signed on to socialism. They have basically agreed with the Democrats that we need big government, right? And, and it, it's, it, it's a logical thing, right? If the, see, the, the, the position that the Republicans have is inconsistent logically. The Republicans are saying during good times, the profits should be uh, privatized. But during bad times, we need to socialize the losses. So we, we need to have low taxes and limited government when times are good. But when times are bad, we need massive government and we have to bail out everybody, even the rich. That doesn't make any sense. At least the Democrats can have a logically consistent, though flawed argument. We need big government all the time. If we need big government during bad times, we need big government during good times. If we're going to socialize the losses, let's socialize the profits. Right. That's a consistent argument that I think is going to win, which is why I think that Trump is going to be a one termer, because I don't think he can out promise uh, Biden or whoever is the, 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 the top of the Democratic ticket. When it's a battle between two Democrats, the you Democrats can win. Biden. You're saying hmm? you don't think Trump beats Biden? No. And I thought Trump was going to beat Clinton. Very few people did at the time. Um, because the reason I thought that Trump could beat Clinton is because Trump was telling the truth about how lousy the economy was, and he was promising a real solution. Now he's going to try to perpetuate the same lie that didn't work for Hillary, although now he's going to try to blame the problem on the coronavirus, uh, and maybe that strategy will work. I mean, Do you actually see. believe Biden is going to beat Trump? But at this point, look, I don't think the Demo Republicans can outpromise the Democrats because the election is going to be decided over who is going to give out the most free stuff. And I think the Democrats win that argument. Now, what, what's going to happen is when we have a complete collapse of the economy, if we have hyperinflation or complete implosion and there is massive poverty, inflation is so bad that they have price controls. And the minute they have price controls, you have shortages, you have black markets. I mean, it's going to be a complete disaster. Then we can have a real campaign between do we go all in on socialism? Is this, are we so broke? Are we destitute? Are we having this misery and poverty, right? Is it because of too much capitalism and too much greed, right? Or is it because of too much government, too much central planning? Is it the bureaucrats and socialism that destroyed the prosperity that capitalism built, or did, did socialism build the prosperity and did capitalism destroy it? And so do we need to be a nation of slaves or a nation of, of free individuals? I mean, that's going to be the real debate between uh, uh, big government and freedom. And, 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 and hopefully uh, freedom can win that debate. I don't know. I mean, it's a tough call. 
Uh, you know, about, but on record, are you saying Biden's going to be Trump? I think, well, I think Biden will be Trump or if Biden ends up not being the nominee for some crazy reason, I think whoever is at the top of the ticket uh, will be Trump. But I mean, is it a sure thing? No. I mean, I think the, the, the what's Trump's, your percentage? If you were a betting man in Las Vegas, what's your percentage? If you I say, to- I say, I say he's 70, I think it's 70, 80% at least that it's going to be Biden. Do you think 70, 80% is Biden? Yeah. Because we're still going to be in a recession in November. So you're going to have a bunch of people voting during a recession. And, you know, Trump promised a lot of people to make their lives better and their lives are going to be worse. Uh, and, you know, are they going Trump to wasn't vote expecting a coronavirus? Trump wasn't expecting a pandemic, though. But no, he was going to lose even without this. We were going to be in recession even without uh, the coronavirus. It was already starting. The economy was already rolling over. The bubble was already deflating. So, yes, this may be his only chance, which is a reason why uh, Trump may be incentivized to keep the shutdown going longer and longer. Because to the extent that everything is still shut down in November, it's easier to blame it on the virus. But let's assume that we try to restart the economy uh, uh, in May or uh, June, and then we're still in deep recession, which we will be uh, by November, it will be harder for Trump to to blame the virus. I mean, he will. I mean, I think before the virus, he was gonna blame the Fed, uh, but I think the voters are just gonna blame Republicans, blame Trump, and look, they are not gonna be able to outpromise the Democrats. We're gonna have a bidding war over who's gonna give out the most free stuff. Who do you think wins that? You know, I, I, you know, I, I just think that when, it's, when you have two people promising bigger government, uh, the Democrats win. It's not gonna be an argument of less government versus uh, more government or capitalism versus socialism. Socialism has already won the debate. Bernie Sanders is now the mainstream of both political parties. I mean, stuff that the Republicans are supporting today, even Bernie Sanders would have been too embarrassed to recommend it six months ago. Yeah, I don't know if I I, I, uh, uh, see that happening because I don't think uh, America is fully yet comfortable for the concept of socialism to come in. I think it's getting a big surge because the last generation is the biggest generation ever. You know, for the longest time, boomers were 76 million. Now you've got a bigger generation that's got 80 to 83 million, and they're younger. You know how this works. They have to go through their process of getting fired, getting married, losing jobs, losing promotions, you know, and understanding what it is when uh, you're working your ass off and somebody else who isn't through politics gets promoted over you. Then you say, I'm sick of this crap. You know, I want to go out there and do my own thing. We have to go through that. But, but th- this, 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 is, this is the part that this brings me to as you're uh, talking about this stuff with re-election uh, as far as Trump goes. You're saying Trump wouldn't have won without coronavirus. You're saying with or without uh, coronavirus, Trump wouldn't have gotten reelected. Yeah, I I don't think that Trump was going to win. In fact, if you look at the politics of it, I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, he didn't win in a landslide. He won the Electoral College. But if you look at the states that he won, he won by very narrow margins in those states. Right. And who were those swing voters? I mean, these were probably Democrats that were tired of being lied to by the establishment. They knew that the recovery under Obama was phony. 
that it was just smoke and mirrors. It was a stock market, right? Donald Trump called it out. Who cares about the stock market? It's a bubble. The Fed is doing that. The economy, I'm going to reindustrialize the economy, right? I'm going to, we're, it, we're, we're, the economy is, is, is a disaster. It's been hollowed out. I remember some of those last commercials that he ran about how the American economy had been destroyed. We had these huge trade deficits. The trade deficits are bigger now than they ever were before Trump was elected. None of the manufacturing has come back. It's all been a lie. The manufacturing sector is as weak as it's ever been. So none of the substantive changes that, that Trump promised. Did we get rid of Obamacare? No, we made Obamacare worse. That's all we did. So, you know, and we perpetuated the same monetary policy that, that Trump criticized. So the recovery under Trump was just as phony as the recovery under Obama. And so I think the people who, were, who voted for Trump because they kind of hoped that he would be different when they realized that he wasn't, right? That he was no different, that nothing changed. And then you have a Democrat promising democratic socialism saying, look, this is what's going to help, right? The government's going to give you this and give you that and do all this. Those people may say, okay, I tried the Republicans. I tried Trump. That didn't work. So now let me try this, right? I mean, because it's always like things keep getting worse and then you want to vote for change. And so I thought people would want to vote for change, not more of the same. Yeah, it's going to be, here's, here's what I predict. Since you've been famous for making predictions, I'm going to make a prediction here for you, okay? I'm going to join the Peter Ship camp and make a prediction. You said, uh, you made some good predictions. You made some uh, questionable predictions. I think you said gold was going to get to 5,000. And uh, what was it, 2012? It was at 1,700. Today, I think it's around 1,700. But this is my prediction. My prediction is, I think Republicans and Democrats, true Democrats, JFK Democrats, not Bernie uh, Democrats. I'm talking like a Democrat of the 60s that was, you know, they had certain philosophies where JFK today would probably not be a Democrat. He'd be a complete different thing politically. I what think, about Lyndon Johnson? Well, Lyndon Johnson is a complete different story to me. I, I, I have a different opinion on him. But this, yeah. this is what I think about today. This is what I think about today. I foresee a ticket like this taking place in the next two to three elections. Here's a ticket that I think America is going to be more open to it than ever before. I think we're going to see a president that's a Republican with a VP that's a Dem or vice versa, a president that's a Democrat and a VP that's a Republican. And they're going to come out and they're going to say, listen, I'm not, we're not comfortable what's going on right now. We just decided to bring one of each where he and I or she and I are going to debate it out. And we're going to try to make our best decisions because we're not going to get a third party. Perot tried to do it. It didn't work. I think we may have in the next two or three elections, somebody campaigning with a Republican president and a Democrat uh, yeah. VP or some of that taking place. Now, it only happened once, I think. And it well, I mean, that, but we'll, at this we'll, point, there's so little difference between the Democrats and Republicans anyway that I don't even know. Uh, how that even makes a difference. There's very little daylight. I mean, we have a third party. Uh, the Libertarians have been there for a long time. Uh, they're constantly, they're on the ballot, usually in all 50 states. The problem is the media uh, ignores them. They don't get it. Their candidates don't make it into the debates. And so the, the two parties really have a monopoly, a duopoly on power, uh, whether you want to call them Republicans or Republicans. And so they have a vested interest in maintaining that status quo of really one party that's divided into two wings. 
And so they're preventing any, any third parties uh, from, from gaining any traction. So that, that is a big problem. But you know, what you have to overlook is how are we going to get from where we are to what you're talking about when we have to go through this complete economic Armageddon that is around the corner? We have a date with, with destiny here. We are going to have a financial collapse, much worse than 08, much worse when it's happened now, when the Fed has to make that choice that I just described, either letting interest rates skyrocket and letting the economy implode in, in a way that we've never seen before with massive destruction, uh, layoffs, bankruptcies, defaults, I, with no bailouts at all. Remember, in order to do the right thing, nobody gets bailed out. Even though it's going to be much worse than it is now, no bailout, no stimulus, nothing. The government has to sit back because if it doesn't have the Fed you know, uh, providing the money, the government has no money. So the government is powerless. All it can do is do what I said, which is to cut spending. And it's going to be forced to cut spending because it's not going to have the money to spend. Or how do we get through hyperinflation when we wipe out the value of our money? I mean, imagine, imagine people who have millions of dollars in savings being destitute. I mean, maybe they still have assets that have value. They have a house, but they can't afford to maintain it. They can't afford to pay the, the cost of repairs because well, their savings have been wiped out. What happens when we destroy the value of our money? So we have to get through the, 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 this, this uh, situation. Either we destroy the dollar or we have a massive economic implosion. And of course, if we destroy the dollar, the economic implosion is even bigger. So we're going to have to get through this to get to the other side. And, and, and so what is that process going to look like and what is going to emerge on the other side? Is it going to be a return to free market capitalism that leads to the promised land of, uh, you know, a higher standard of living? Or are we going to complete the road to serfdom? Is America going to be a totalitarian uh, nation with an all-powerful government? I mean, it's a very scary uh, prospect. I mean, I can be hopeful that we make the right choice. But, you know, I mean, the the wrong choice is very devastating. Do you think what America was founded on, it's almost a model and a system that's uh, not possible to last too long when the country gets bigger and bigger and bigger, meaning it is a model that works well for a country of 30 million people, 50 million people, but maybe not 335 million people? No, it works great. I mean, the founding fathers, I think they guessed that maybe it would last 200 years. but the, the problem is the, the safeguards get eroded away, right? They, that because of the, the, the elements of democracy that creep into the republic, once you get to a point where people can vote themselves benefit from government, you're, that's the beginning of the end, right? And, and it took a long time, and we created a lot of wealth as a republic, and it's taken a while for a democracy to destroy that wealth. But that is human nature. I mean, so maybe if we can one day change human nature, uh, you know, greed and envy. And, you know, a lot of people, too, who are skeptical of human beings, you know, they're skeptical of capitalists. They think that they're greedy businessmen. That's fine. Greed is fine uh, when you're an entrepreneur, because the only way you can make money in a free market is through voluntary exchange. Yes, you could cheat, you could commit fraud, and there's laws against that. But to really succeed in a free market economy, your success is measured by how much you help other people. You have to convince them to buy your products or your services, and, and, and you have to provide it better than your competitor. And if you do that, and if you make other people's lives better, they will reward you, and you'll, you'll get rich. The problem is 
Greedy people also go into government. They go into politics. And there their greed can be very harmful because yeah. that's not about voluntary yeah. interactions. They have the power of government. They can force you to do things uh, using the power of the state. And what happens is those greedy people, those evil people go into government and then they enrich themselves by impoverishing others. Capitalists enrich themselves by enriching others. The bureaucrats enrich themselves by impoverishing others. But they also help enrich certain people that, that, that perpetuate their, 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 their uh, incumbency. And, you know, so they reward those that help them. And it's an incestuous system. And, yeah, it's a problem. You know, the key is to limit democracy so you don't have all this uh, voting for theft, voting to steal things from other people. Uh, and, and, and if you do that, if you have liberty, if you protect private property, then everybody will prosper. And, of course, people want to say, well, Peter, what about the poor people who fall through the cracks Yes, let private charity help the poor people that fall through the cracks because there's always going to be those people. In a capitalist economy, there's far fewer of them because there's a lot more opportunity and prosperity. But when individuals voluntarily help other individuals, it's much more efficient than when the government does it. The government taxes somebody a dollar, and by the time the money gets to the intended recipient, there's only 10 cents left. <laughs> private charity, they collect a dollar, they spend 10 cents on it, and 90 cents goes to the, to the people that need it. So g government is not efficient at anything, uh, especially helping the poor. The government very creates the concept. poor. And, and then, then the government perpetuates poverty because the government wants people to be poor because that's how they get them to vote for them. It's, hey, you're poor, and I'm giving you money. Now I've bought your vote. See, if it wasn't for me, you would starve because you wouldn't get these welfare checks. See, that's the government. The government cripples you and then claims credit for giving you a crutch. The free market makes it so you don't need a crutch. By the way, what are your thoughts? I mean, I know you're more on the economy side. Do you have any opinions on coronavirus and the handling of it, the shutting down, all that stuff? What are your thoughts about what's going on right now? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I hear a lot of things. And of course, I'm generally skeptic, skeptical of anything that happens. And I certainly agree that regardless, the government is using this situation to expand its power and to diminish individual rights that will haunt us you know for a long time just like 9-11 right the 9-11 was a tragedy but the bigger tragedy was our response we did more damage to ourselves with the patriot act and things like that anti-money laundering we destroyed our liberties not the terrorists the terrorists won based on the legislation that we enacted during the hysteria that surrounded uh, those attacks and we're still suffering we're still suffering a lower standard of living uh, because of uh, the way the government took advantage and exploited that crisis to make the government bigger and to diminish uh, our freedoms and therefore our prosperity so the same thing is happening now and I am very worried about the rules that are going to be put into place as the economy is you know reopened what are the new requirements that are going to be put on businesses uh, uh, that are going to undermine their productivity, that are going to increase the cost of, make, of running a business and employing people and serving the public. Uh, what other rights are we going to lose uh, going forward to give the government more power to supposedly protect us uh, from future uh, pandemics? Uh, but as far as the coronavirus itself, look, I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I tend to believe that maybe they're making a mountain out of a molehill here, uh, that the coronavirus may not be any worse than an ordinary influenza. 
uh, that they're exaggerating the numbers, that people are dying that happen to have coronavirus, and now we're blaming it on coronavirus when there are other factors that are as important or maybe more important, and that there's a lot of people who have the disease who are not uh, you know, in the statistics because they have such a mild case of it that we don't know about them, that if we actually you know, looked at the whole population, that the percentage of death is actually very small because we have so many people who have it who aren't even showing symptoms. So we don't even get them in the statistics. So uh, there's a good chance that this whole thing is overblown. But I, I, I also get the fact that maybe it's not. And a lot of us are just taking, you know what, even though I think it's a bunch of BS, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take any chances. You know, maybe they're telling the truth. Maybe it is as bad as they're saying. So you know what? I'm not going to go out to the restaurants. I'm not going to travel as much just, to, just in case. Even though I think it's probably BS and even though I think I'd probably be fine, you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, may, you know. so they've got everybody so scared that but even people like me who are like looking at this, it's, oh, this, this is probably bullshit. So then that means their yeah. formula of fear tactics is working on somebody like you who typically questions everything. Yeah, I, well, it's working all over the world. I mean, it, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, why take any chances? You know, it's like, look, you know, uh, people, you don't have to. There are a lot of things you don't have to do. You could just decide, I won't do that. I mean, I'll, uh, better safe than sorry, right? And so if a lot of people are making these decisions, obviously it's a, it's a huge impact uh, on economic activity. Where, where, where people are deciding that they have to alter their behavior. And that's why I think that even when the government gives everybody the all clear, people are still going to be nervous and they are not going to uh, interact in you know, social scenes to the extent that they did before, at least for maybe a year or two, right? And so that's gonna have lingering effects on a lot of these businesses that have been bailed out that are probably gonna be in need of continuous uh, bailouts. But of course, the problem is when all the money that we're, we're using collapses, right? Everybody can get a check from the government, but what happens when that check doesn't buy anything? That's the crisis that's coming. But what is that check? You know, what, the check is nothing to a guy making 130 grand a year that's only got $93,000 saved in a bank, and he's uh, going through his money very quickly. That's, that's not a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, so the, people, the people who were higher earners, who were living uh, on the edge, right? They were, you know, it's they're, they're suffering. The people who are actually better off are lower income people who are now earning more money being unemployed than they were when they had to work. And there's a big difference between just getting a check and having to actually go to work. I mean, most people don't enjoy working. Plus, you have the commute time and all the other ancillary expenses, and then they tax you. So there are a lot of Americans that are making a lot more money now that don't want the economy back. Why would they want their lousy jobs back when they're making more money and they have more leisure? Uh, and, and now a lot of them don't even have to pay their rent. It's okay not to pay your rent. It's okay not to make your mortgage. And by the way, we're going to give you even more money than when you were paying your rent. So this is a windfall for a lot of people who are going to want to perpetuate this gravy train. You know, and so a lot of these programs are going to be extended because now we've created this constituency, just like with Social Security. The government hooks everybody on a Ponzi scheme called Social Security. Instead of having self-reliant people save for their own retirement, we tax the hell out of them when they're working, and we tell them to rely on the government Ponzi scheme. But once you've got a bunch of people who have none of their own retirement savings, and the only thing they got is a government 
promise, nobody will touch that. You create that third rail where you have all these voters that have been bought and paid for because of Social Security. We're now doing that now on a bigger scale by putting a lot of people on these programs where their, their, their livelihood now is coming from the government. And we'll see if anybody has the ability to take that away. So you have that class of people that's actually making more money, not being productive, not working. Uh, the people who are in the middle are, yeah, the guys that were maybe making 150, 200, 300,000 a year, their uh, unemployment is not supplementing their incomes. Um, and, and, you know, uh, but everything, nobody should be getting these, these, these checks. The, the, A, the government doesn't have the money, and printing the money doesn't mean that we can afford it well, because the cost of should be getting these high. checks. Uh, Peter, when you say nobody should be getting these checks, but we should trust the shutdown, if that's a contradictory message because if nobody gets the check, yet we do shut down, then if they're not getting money, there's many well, here's the thing. getting money. If the state governments knew that there was no federal bailout money coming, would they be shutting everything down as aggressively as they are? Or would they be doing more of a cost-benefit analysis? I think it's because everybody believes that we can shut down and the government's just going to provide all the money. And it's like, okay, let's play it safe. Yeah. But if you have to realize that there is a financial cost of these shutdowns, then maybe we can do it in a smarter way, which is what I said from the beginning. Maybe it's the older people who are not in good health who have these other conditions that should be quarantined and young, healthy people should be going about their day. And maybe, yes, we could wear masks and things like that, but we should have to make viable economic decisions knowing the cost and benefit of every decision we make. If we operate under the false premise that there's no cost because all this money is coming from free for the government, then we're, we're not doing the right thing. And I think a lot of these state governments too that were already broke going into this crisis because of bad decisions they made. They're now using this as an excuse to say, oh, we need all this bailout money. Oh, you have to give us this money now. You can't let us go bankrupt. It's kind of like a get out of jail free card for a lot of states and municipalities who want to milk this for all it's worth. In a way, I think they're kind of intentionally doing this to get more government money. It's like the worst they can, they can make it for themselves, the more money they think they're going to qualify for. So if, if nobody thought that there was free money and we had a cost, then I think we would have a more rational discussion on what to do. And the, you know, the, whether or not people don't pay their rent or don't pay their mortgages, all of these decisions should be made voluntarily by the affected parties. So landlords and tenants should make their own deal without the government. Because look, let's say I'm a landlord and my, my, my uh, tenant is unemployed and he can't pay his rent. In this environment, if I kick him out, am I going to get another tenant right away? How long is my apartment going to be empty anyway? And if the guy was a good tenant for years and years, there's value in that relationship. Exactly. Landlords and tenants will work it out. They I worked agree. it out during the Depression. There was, the, Roosevelt never said no one has to pay their rent during the Depression. It was a depression. It was 25% unemployment. And they didn't say you don't have to pay rent. But landlords, some people couldn't pay their rent. They worked it out. So we can work stuff out. Uh, borrowers and, 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 and debtors, employers, employees, they can work it out. The problem is everybody's broke. Nobody has any savings. Whose fault is that? Yeah, the Fed kept interest rates so low for so long. They punished savers and they rewarded debtors. So we got a lot of debtors and we no savers. How, how much, how much, uh, uh, I'm assuming you've read the book, uh, uh, the, 
The Creature of Jekyll Island. I'm assuming <laughs> yeah. you've read it. How much, yeah, I, credence, yeah. how much credence do you give to that yourself? Are you from the school of thought of, oh, I don't know about the, you know, the, the six men or whatever it is that yeah. they got together? How, how, how much value do you give to that? Look, you know, I, I do not believe that the Federal Reserve was started with bad intent, right? I, and, and the Federal Reserve Act, the way it was originally proposed and adopted was not a bad act. It was not, right? Well, the reason that the Fed was created is prior to the Federal Reserve, uh, a lot of banks issued their own currency, which was all, and all of it was backed by gold, right? Uh, but, you know, if you were out in California and somebody gave you a note from a Philadelphia bank, how did you know the note was good? I mean, I, I don't know. There's, there, were, there were a lot of different notes that were circulating at the time. And the idea was, let's have one central bank that could rediscount all these notes, take the notes, right, and reissue its own notes. So the Federal Reserve note was supposed to be backed 100% by notes of other banks and 40% by gold. And the theory behind the, the Federal Reserve, too, was to provide an elastic money supply. And the idea at the time was that as the economy expanded and contracted, the money supply would mimic the economy. So during good times when the economy was expanding, the Federal Reserve would create money. And during times when the economy was contracting during a recession, they would shrink the money supply, right? The opposite of what they do now. So it was supposed to have an, an elastic money supply that reacted to the economy to kind of smooth out prices and to have a better quality of, of, of currency uh, that would be more recognizable. Uh, and, and the original Federal Reserve Act, the Federal Reserve was prohibited from owning any US government debt. They couldn't own even treasuries. That was not even allowed. That was in the original act. They couldn't do it. So that act, as originally intended, was not bad. The problem was the camel's nose under the tent. The reason not to do it was because nothing stays good. Once you allow a central bank to form, it gets corrupted. And it happened right away because we, we established the Federal Reserve in 1913. We got into World War I in 1917. The minute we got into World War I, that's when the government wanted to use the Fed to help finance the war. And so they amended the Federal Reserve Act during World War I to allow the Federal Reserve to own U.S. Treasuries so that we could finance World War I. See, they used the crisis, the emergency of a war that we never should have entered in the first place. We should have minded our own business and never got involved in that war. And had we stayed out of World War I, there never would have been a World War II, but that's the topic of a whole other podcast. But because we got into war, we were able to amend the Federal Reserve Act. And here's an interesting fact that people don't know. You want to know why we have a debt ceiling? We, the debt ceiling came about at the same time because what happened was politicians back in 1917 were worried, hey, if we allow the Federal Reserve to buy U.S. Treasuries, what if, we, what if the Fed runs big debts, right? And so they said, okay, we'll have a debt ceiling. We'll limit how much money the Federal Government can borrow so we won't have to worry about the Fed monetizing the debt. But the problem with the debt ceiling is that it, it, they could raise it. So... We empowered the Federal Reserve to monetize debt, and we imposed the debt ceiling at the same time, understanding how the two are related. But then every time we hit the ceiling, we raised it. Nobody ever had the guts not to raise the ceiling. See, when I ran for Senate in 2010, that was my campaign. I was going to be the vote to filibuster the debt ceiling. The buck was going to stop with me. No more increase in the debt ceiling 
to force the government to cut spending. See, they always say we have to raise the debt ceiling because America always pays its bills, right? If we don't raise the debt ceiling, we can't pay our bills. The reason we raise the debt ceiling is because we never pay our bills. We, we go into debt instead of paying our bills. I wanted to force the country to pay its bills by not raising the debt ceiling. I say, okay, no more borrowing, so we got to pay our bills or admit that we can't. We have to default or whatever, but we're going to start to be, to be honest. But that's how we got the debt ceiling. So I don't think that it was created in a, as a conspiracy for an evil purpose. I think it's another example of the road to hell being paved with good intentions and why we never should have had a central bank. Because the people who opposed the central bank, like Andy Daxon, who got rid of the first central bank, right? It's because they understand the potential for abuse, right? The founding fathers knew that paper money and central banking was a bigger threat to our liberty than the armies of other nations, right? We destroyed ourselves, and right? I think money, central banking, also the Supreme Court has done a lousy job of enforcing the Constitution, so they've let us down uh, as that branch of government. Judiciary has been a big failure, uh, but the central bank, I mean, that has been probably the biggest problem with hollowing out our economy and, and placing us in this predicament that we're in now. Do you believe the most powerful man in the world is still the president of the United States? Well, obviously the president has a lot of power, but probably the, the Fed might have even more power for now. But that power is going to go away. When the dollar collapses and the U.S. dollar is no longer uh, the reserve currency, uh, then the power is going to collapse with it. I mean, we still have a military, obviously, uh, but the Soviet Union had a big military. What happened to it? It crumbled, right? Because the Soviet Union uh, was also a mirage, uh, the same as the United States. I mean, you know, we're, we exist based on debt. It's a debt bubble, and it's the world that is financing it. The world is making this possible uh, by accepting the dollar as the reserve currency and living beneath its means so that we can live above our means. The world has to produce extra so that we can consume. The world has to save money and lend it to us instead of using it productively in their own economy. So we're basically a parasite right now feeding off the global economy. As soon as they realize this and, 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 and want to extricate themselves from this uh, you know, relationship, uh, then the, the power of the United States is going to implode. So the most powerful person in the world today, you're saying, is the, is the Fed? The, the, the Powell is more powerful than the president? Well, I think, I think if Powell did the right thing, uh, you know, but, you know, Trump could do the right thing, too. You know, Trump could, Trump could stop the spending. He doesn't have to sign uh, these, uh, uh, these government uh, bailouts and these deficits. I mean, all he needs, all Trump needs is uh, a third of the, the Senate, a chunk of the Republicans to stand with him, and he could shrink government. I mean, Trump could do the right thing right now if he wants to. The problem he is he doesn't get want reelected, to. Though. He will not get reelected, though. Well, who cares? He's probably not going to get reelected anyway. But well, why saying, did we elect Trump? But that's the system that's been set up in America, though. The, the system in America is when you become a president on first term, don't push the envelope too much. Push it on the second one because you know this. It's not like I'm the first one telling you this. If you push too much on the first one, you won't get reelected. But you know what? You the when they get reelected, they don't do anything either. Look, if, if I ever had the opportunity to be president, I would not be planning on my second term. I don't Because you don't know if you're going to get one. I would want to do it all in my first term. And Trump had the opportunity for his first two years when he had the Republican Congress. That's when he could have leveled with the public and used his political capital to do the right thing, to step above politics 
Yeah. And the level with the American public, instead, he, as soon as he became elected, he became another politician. And all he cared about was getting, an, having a second term. And he was willing to sacrifice everything that got him his first term in order to buy the second term. Well, I mean, he had to debate this Russia deal for the entire time. So that, that, that made it pretty uh, uh, annoying when you're going in and you're kind of trying to fight off something else. But gold standard. Okay, I, mean, I know you're a big uh, fan of going back to the gold standard. If, if we do decide to go back on the gold standard, how do we do that? Well, we're going to go back on the gold standard eventually. You know, it's not going to be our decision. It's going to be the market's decision. I think the world is likely to go on the gold standard before we do, even though we still supposedly have a lot of gold because the U.S. dollar is now the world reserve currency. Before the dollar was the reserve currency, gold was the monetary reserve, right? And we changed that, at, you know, in, in, in Brent Wood. But the reason we were able to get the world to follow us onto the dollar standard was because at the time, the U.S. was the world's richest creditor nation. We had massive trade surpluses or big creditor nation. Uh, and we had all the gold. We had all the factories. We were the big producer of manufactured goods, low cost producer of everything manufactured was made in America. So we had a powerful economy, a real wealthy economy. And the dollar was not only backed by gold, but it was convertible into gold. Americans couldn't convert it anymore, thanks to FDR. But foreigners, if you had $35 Federal Reserve notes, you would get an ounce of gold. And so what we told all the central banks around the world was, hey, back your currencies with dollars instead of gold. Because the dollar is as good as gold, because $35 are one ounce of gold. But the difference is, if you have $35, you can buy a U.S. Treasury and earn interest, right? but still have a gold standard because we got your gold at Fort Knox. And so the, the world made that deal with us. But of course, once they made that deal, we exploited it because now all of a sudden we convinced the world to hold treasuries as reserves, to loan the US government money so we could spend more. But what really happened during the 1960s is we abused that. We really started running big deficits because we didn't have to have the gold anymore. We can just print money and everybody was holding onto it. So we had, uh, the Great Society, the War on Poverty, Vietnam, the Moon Mission. We had the guns and butter. And we printed all this money. And um, then we started, you know, our creditors got smart. De Gaulle and France in particular wanted his gold. It's just bullshit. You don't have any, you don't, you know. And in fact, prices really started to go up because of all the money we were printing. But the price of gold wasn't going up. All the other prices were going up. And so it was clear that gold was undervalued. And so the world wanted their money. And, and then we went off the gold standard. Instead of doing the right thing, which would be to devalue the dollar officially to a point that the, the gold price would make sense or to allow deflation so that prices would come down back in line with a $35 gold price, we did the worst thing possible. We went off the gold standard and the price of gold went up to 850. We had all the inflation of the 1970s. We really you know, ha had a terrible a decade. Uh, but even though the dollar got marked down dramatically, it lost two thirds of its value against the, the Swiss franc, the, the D-mark, uh, the yen. Uh, the dollar continued to function as the reserve currency despite the fact that it was backed by nothing, right? Now, once that happened, we really abused that. Then we started running massive deficits because we didn't have to have any gold and no, everybody knew that we didn't have any gold and we just kept printing money and then we developed this completely phony economy, this service sector economy, that was based on the ability to print money and just send it abroad. And the world sent us all their stuff that we didn't have to produce. And now no one had to save anything because we could just rely on the foreign savings. 
But when the dollar crashes, and it's going to, because this system has screwed up the entire global economy, um, then the world is not just going to anoint some other currency as the king, right? We're not going to have the euro as the reserve currency or the yen or the Chinese RMB, uh, none of that, right? We're just going to go back to gold. Gold works as money, and gold is a viable reserve for currency. And that's why a lot of central banks still hold gold, and that's why central banks have been buying gold, is because they are preparing for a return to a gold-based monetary system that works instead of this fiat system that doesn't, but that principally benefits the United States. The United States benefited because we were the monopolists in the creating of the dollar. We got to print them, and so we got this extraordinary privilege. But in the process, we have hollowed out our economy. So when we lose that privilege, we're going to have a huge price to pay. We are very vulnerable because of, you know, of, of this system. But in the long run, I mean, we'll, we'll benefit too from a return to the gold standard. But that's what's going to happen. And, and, and so, there, and the way you go back to a gold standard is you simply announce, right, that your currency is now tied to gold at a, at a, at a particular rate. And obviously, that rate is going to be a function of how much gold you have and how much currency is in circulation. But obviously, the gold price for the U.S. to return to a gold standard, at this point, I don't know if it's 10000 15000 20000 I don't know where we have to fix the price of gold to make it work in dollars, but we can do it. But then, once you get on a gold standard, you got to stay on a gold standard. That means the budget has to be balanced. That means trade has to be balanced, right? We, we, we can't run these big budget deficits. We can't run these big trade deficits. So now all of a sudden, gold is going to force fiscal responsibility on our elected officials, which is what they don't want. That is the opposition. That is why government doesn't want the gold center, because they don't want uh, that kind of restraint. It's like, you know, dude, if, if, if you're at a high school prom, did the kids want the chaperones there? Of course not. They don't want the chaperones there. They want to have fun. They don't want the chaperones. Uh, and so the politicians don't want chaperones at their prom. They don't want gold ruining their party. They want to be Santa Claus. They want to get, they want to pr promise something for nothing. When you're on a gold standard, you, you can't print gold. It has to be mined out of the ground, right? So the, then the question becomes to go back to gold standard, the history of it. If you can help me out with this part here, I think it was what? FDR went on gold standard. He asked people to bring back the gold, and they were, you know, confiscated. No, no, no. Gold. We were look. The we were history of it. Well, we were look. We were on a gold standard from the Constitution. And in fact, the Constitution established both gold and silver as money. So we're on a bimetallic standard, right? So the dollar was actually defined as a weight of gold or silver. That was the definition of a dollar, right? It's a it's a measurement of how much gold or silver that you have, right? And that's where it came from. And it was actually, came, it was named from the Spanish mill dollar, which was a coin that was uh, circulating uh, around the time of the revolution. And in fact, during the revolution, uh, we did have paper money, right? The, the government issued continental uh, money that was actually backed by gold, uh, but they issued too much of it and it ended up collapsing and, and people got 10 cents on the dollar and it, it gave way to the expression, not worth a continental, uh, which is one of the reasons that the founding fathers, when they established the United States, did not want paper money. And so they specifically banned it. If you understand how the Constitution is written, you'll see that paper money is illegal in the United States. They, they said gold and silver are legal tender. 
They said no state can make anything other than gold and silver legal tender. And the only power they gave to Congress was the power to coin money, which is gold and silver. They didn't give Congress the power to emit bills of credit, which is paper money, and they denied that power to the states. So we, there was no paper money. And we had no paper money at all in the United States until the Civil War, right? So we went until 1961, right, without any paper money. So if paper money was constitutional, we would have had it before 1861. So we got paper money in 1861, and it was backed by gold. The greenbacks that were issued were backed by gold. And they, they, were, they challenged it. There were several Supreme Court cases because people said, hey, this is unconstitutional. You can't print money even if it's backed by gold. And if you read some of these Supreme Court decisions, the reason they said it was constitutional was not because of the monetary powers that were given to Congress. Everybody knew that they had no power to print money. They looked to the necessary and proper clause and said we were in a civil war. It was an emergency. And so it was an emergency wartime power. If the government could requisition goods in a war, they could requisition goods and give you a, a paper IOU. So it was because it was a war and there was an emergency that we were able to issue the paper money backed by gold. And then what happened was after the war ended, they stopped doing it. They, I mean, the, 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 so the paper money didn't even come back until the Federal Reserve brought it back in 1913, right? And we were still on a gold standard. As I said, Federal Reserve notes had to be backed by, by real money. In fact, Federal Reserve notes were not dollars. Federal Reserve notes were IOUs for dollars. The dollars were the gold that the Federal Reserve had, a coin, right? That's a dollar. An ounce of gold is a dollar, right? A $20 gold piece, about an ounce of gold, is $20. The dollar is the gold and silver. The piece of paper, the Federal Reserve note, which is why it's called a note, is it's a note because it pays the bearer dollars, the real money. The notes aren't the money. The, do, the gold and silver was the money. So we were still on a gold standard. And then what happened is when the depression hit, right, stock market crashed, uh, and Roosevelt, I mean, Hoover made all his mistakes. of he, Hoover was like the George Bush of his day with big bailouts and stimulus, his own version, uh, to turn that downturn into what became the Great Depression. Had we handled the 1929 downturn the way we handled the 1920 downturn, had we done nothing, had we just cut government spending and let the free market work, there never would have been a depression and we never would have elected Roosevelt. But because uh, Hoover uh, intervened for political reasons and made the situation worse, uh, we ended up with Hoover. And believe it or not, Hoover campaigned I mean, Roosevelt campaigned against Hoover by campaigning against the deficits that he ran, the big deficits, and saying, you know, he's, he's intervening too much. He was like Trump. He kind of ran criticizing the big government policies of Hoover. But then when he won, he adopted the entire agenda with the New Deal and, 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 made, it, and made it even worse. But one of the things that uh, Roosevelt wanted to do was he wanted to increase government spending. And the gold standard stood in the way. So rather than just abandoning the gold standard, he said it's illegal to own gold. Everybody has to turn in their gold, right? So everybody turned in their gold, or not everybody, but a lot of people, not and the government did. gave everybody $25, right, for, for an ounce. And then as soon as Roosevelt got everybody's gold, he devalued the dollar and said, now you need $35 to buy an ounce of gold. So that's how they, he, they took all that money because they, they had to devalue the dollar, but they wanted to get all the gold first. Right. And then they used that to fund a lot of the, the government programs. But we stayed on a gold standard, even though we devalued the dollar, 
we stayed on the gold standard and it, it was illegal still to own gold because the government, in order to get everybody's gold, they had to make it illegal to own it. And it stayed illegal to own gold until the early, in the 1970s, it was illegal to own it. Um, but even when the government made it legal again, and you could always own gold jewelry, you just couldn't own it in a monetary form. You can have a necklace made of gold, of you can have silverware you know, made of gold, but you just couldn't have a bar of bullion or coin. Um, but certain collector's coins you're allowed to have. Right? They couldn't take your coin collection. But what happened was when they, when they made it legal again to own gold, it wasn't re-monetized because now we were totally off the gold standard. We didn't leave the gold standard completely until 1971 when Nixon you know, said that's it. But the reason we went off the gold standard was because Nixon had a choice. Cut government spending right, or sever the link to gold because we were reaching the point where we could not do it anymore. We were going to have to act responsibly, right, uh, or to, to continue to be reckless. But the only way to do that was to get off the gold standard. But the politicians want to pretend that, oh, the gold standard is bad. The gold standard is good. You know, they say, oh, if we're on a gold standard, we can't stimulate the economy in a recession. Exactly. Because the stimulus doesn't work. It's actually a sedative. The government causes the recessions with the policies that it uses to get us out of the last recession. And instead of allowing the free market to cure the economy, government intervention makes it sicker. So if, if somebody does believe that we're going to go back on gold standard, would this be a good time to buy gold? Absolutely. Look, we can't go back on a gold standard at the current price of gold. The price of gold is going to have to be much higher. Why is that? Is today. Hmm? Why is that? But because it, 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 look at all the money that's in circulation. I mean, look. The other way to do it is if the price of everything else goes down. So if we allow complete deflation, if we allow prices to collapse and gold stays the same, then, then it can still work. But it, it has to do with relative. And in deflation, the government would destroy a lot of the money that's in circulation. So we can go back to a gold standard through massive deflation. I just don't think that, that that's politically expedient. I think the easiest way to go back to a gold standard is just to revalue the one price of gold up to, meet, to match everything else. Uh, but either way, if you own gold, you win either way, right? If the price of gold goes up, way up, then you have more purchasing power. If the price of gold stays the same and real estate crashes, stocks crash, then you still have more purchasing power. Right? You can still buy more stuff with your gold. So regardless of how we go back to a gold standard, if you have more gold now, you are the winner, right? The central banks that are adding to their gold holdings now, their nations will be winners, Right? It's the central banks that were dumb up to sell their gold that still haven't bought any back. Uh, Look, th those are the you know, ridiculously foolish decisions. You're a pro-gold guy. So then the, uh, uh, the other question would be, when is a bad time to buy gold? Well, look, as a trader, look, obviously after a big spike, it's probably not the best time to be a trader. But as far as if you don't own any gold, the best time to buy some is right now because it's like, you know, what if you don't own any insurance? You know, what if you have a house? When's the best time to buy your insurance policy? Just go out and buy it because you don't have insurance. You know, if you have a family that depends on you, you don't have life insurance, when's the best time to buy it? You better buy it now, right? I mean, now, if I knew exactly when uh, I was going to die, well, then I, I would, could buy it the day before. But since you don't know that, right, gold is insurance, so you need to have it. You need to own it. So if you don't own any gold, 
You buy some today. Doesn't matter the price. Now, do you buy all that you can afford? No. Keep a little powder dry. Buy some more if it goes down. And in the future, if you have more money, like people should have 5 or 10% of their money in gold. But as they earn more money, they need to buy more gold, right? Because now you have a bigger portfolio that you need to, to protect. So, you know, my company is Shift Gold. I, I think I got the best prices. If you don't believe me, just shop around. Don't buy numismatics. You know, that's not a gold investing. That's a coin collector. This is not the time to start a coin collection. You just want to own bullion. That's the cheapest way uh, to acquire gold or silver. Uh, so people should do that. You know, and you know, I, I think the mining stocks are really good investments because I think that they don't reflect uh, what's going to happen. That's more speculative. Uh, but I think you know people should be buying. And I've been telling people to buy gold for over 20 years. When I started recommending it as a broker, gold was uh, under $400 an ounce. It was actually under 300 for a while, but I didn't really start buying it for my clients until it was in the threes. I started buying silver. It was under five bucks. It's around 15 now. It got as high as $50 uh, in 2011. I think it's going much higher than that in this bull market. So are you more Bitcoin or are you more gold? Well, I'm, I'm, I don't have any Bitcoin at all. I mean, I, I, I don't think uh, the cryptocurrencies are going to uh, work. I think they're fool's gold. I think that they're, they're speculative vehicles. I think there are a lot of people who think uh, that Bitcoin is gold. Uh, because it's replicated some of the properties that made gold a better money than other commodities that have functioned as money. But it misses the point. The most important point of any uh, money is its intrinsic value. Uh, the reason that gold worked as money is because of the inherent value of the metal, uh, its properties as a metal, uh, and the fact that it has so many uses. Uh, it's the most useful metal on the planet, uh, whether it's uh, for conducting electricity, uh, all the other applications it has that makes it such a good metal for jewelry or, you know, or other applications. Uh, you know, gold is valuable and gold can store that value indefinitely, uh, which is why it's so good as money and, and it has other properties as far as uh, its liquidity and its divisibility and its durability and its immutability. And there's a lot of things, a lot of characteristics that make gold better money than salt or cattle or, you know, or wampum or cigarettes or different things that could function as money. But what, what, what gives paper money value is the real money that backs it up, right? Because fiat money doesn't have any value on its own unless it's tied to something real. But Bitcoin has no actual value. There's, there's, you can't do anything with a Bitcoin. There is no real world demand for Bitcoin. Yes, you can sell it to somebody else, but they'll only buy it if they think the price is going to go up. But somebody will only buy it from them if they think somebody will pay more. But the minute you run out of greater fools, uh, the, the pyramid implodes. And that's really what we have. I feel badly for a lot of people who are going to lose a lot of money uh, who have bought into this uh, uh, pyramid. Uh, but a lot of people who got in early uh, who are smart enough to get out will make a lot of money. And if they're smart enough to, to convert that, those paper profits into gold, then they'll keep the money. They'll keep the purchasing power. You've been an entrepreneur before multiple times. You have businesses. You, you've done well for yourself, whether it was companies. I mean, I read somewhere where uh, I think for like a three-year span, your salary per year, you were making somewhere around $17 million a year. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's, it's said that you've made some legitimate money. You've done well for yourself. Well, well all, the money, all the money I've made has been legitimate. I haven't, st I haven't stolen When I say legitimate, I mean, believe me, I, I've interviewed mobsters. I don't mean as mob money. I'm talking about <laughs> like you've made money. Like you're not somebody that has opinions that just wrote, wrote a couple books. You yeah, made well, money I, and then you started giving your opinions. Yeah, this look- this is the question I was going to ask you. If you're the 35-year-old Peter Schiff today, you're running a small business, you got employees, 
You, you, you got, you got, you know, the challenge you're, you're facing with shutting down. What would the 35 year old Peter Schiff be doing in today's economy? Well, I mean, you know, if, if, if I had my business, which, you know, my business was very small when I was 35. And that's perfect. I, That's the yeah. person that I, w- I want that person's counsel. But I could have easily never, I didn't, the first two years that I ran my business, I didn't even earn any money. I had no income. I had to spend all my revenue on my rent, on my salaries. And the reason I was able to go into business is because I had personal savings. Uh, and how did I get personal savings? When I worked uh, for an employer like Searson Lehman, like we discussed, and I earned money, I didn't spend most of it. I saved it. Right. And, and so I was able to use my savings to start my own business and I was able to survive on those savings and some profits I had from an investment. I had invested early on in some cellular phone deal and I made some money there uh, back in the days where they were lottering off the cell, the cell signals. So I had some income from an investment. I had some savings from work and that was able to tide me over for a couple of years where I earned no money. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I started a business. But, you know, so I was already used to earning no money at one point. I mean, if if I would have maintained as I, I've always had, I've always maintained my business in a way that I can go without revenue. That I, I, I you know, I, and as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, that is a risk that you take as an entrepreneur. Is you may not get any money, but you may have to be uh, on the hook for all costs of costs. And so that's part of what you do as a business is that you, you have reserves. And I've always operated my businesses where if I don't earn any income, I'm fine. I can cover my overhead with my past income. I can use that, right? Now, obviously, taxation diminishes people's ability to do that, uh, but you can still do that. But, I, you know, I, I would not be looking for a government bailout. My Look, I didn't take any of this money. The gut, look, I, I could have I signed up and I could have got uh, a bunch of money. I have several businesses that have employees that I have no intention of firing. So I could have got all this free money. But the problem is, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I knew I didn't need the money. So I didn't want to say to the government I need the money. But look, I'm, I don't want to pay taxes. I'm in Puerto Rico now, right? When, when I was making a lot of that big money uh, back, back, back then, I was half of it was going to the government. So I, I made a lot of money, but I, I, I ha- the government took half. Now the government's not taking any, at least the federal government, or very little of it. Uh, and so uh, you know, now I'm able to keep, keep what I earn, but I'm earning the money. I'm earning it legitimately by providing services that people are voluntarily paying me to provide. Uh, you know, my, my main business is asset management, where I manage people's money uh, through individual accounts, through my mutual funds. Uh, which people can you know go to europacificfunds.com to check out my mutual funds or europacificcapital, europac.com uh, to look at having accounts with me. I have a bank here, Europe Pacific Bank. You know, we shift gold where we sell gold. So I, I, I'm in the market competing with other gold companies. You know, I compete with other m- broker dealers and banks and asset management companies. And obviously, there are people who choose to do business with me uh, when they could do business with somebody else, but they choose to do business with me. But, but I think and, you know, something that's very powerful, though. You said something that's very powerful. I think the small business owner, the entrepreneur can take that. It's, it's not what you're doing today that matters. It's what you did a year ago, two years ago, three years ago to prepare yourself for a crisis like a time like this where you can at least survive during times like this. Yeah, and, and, and people forget, you know, when everybody thinks it's easy to be the businessman, like, oh, it's not fair. You know, the workers, you know, they need to share in the profits. The workers don't share in the risks. You know, when, when, when people take a job, right, the easiest thing you could do is accept a job from somebody else because now they are on the hook 
with paying you, right? They have to figure out how to cover the pay, right? You're, you get a guaranteed salary, right? Where the employer is going to pay you uh, every Friday or every other Friday, whether he's got a profit or not. When you own a business, you are the last one to get paid. That's right. You only get paid after you've paid everybody else. You've paid uh, your workers their wages. You paid the landlord the rent. If you borrowed money, you paid interest to your lenders, right? Only if there's something left over do you make any money. And that is the risk that the entrepreneur is rewarded for taking. Because when you set a business, you have no idea if you're going to succeed or fail. Yep. And so if you succeed, you need to be paid for that. But you also then are responsible as you're making money not to just spend it all. Uh, workers, okay, if you're going to live paycheck to paycheck, that's on you. But if you're the employer and you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're putting all of your workers at risk. You're putting your whole company at risk. Oh so you don't God. do that. You save your money. But, you know, you have the Federal Reserve and the government coming in and encouraging debt, encouraging, encouraging leverage, screwing up uh, the system. But the entrepreneur deserves what he earns. But if he's not responsible enough, uh, to be a steward of capital and, and, and prepare for potential downturns, which always come, then we, the, the, the free market will clean house. And what happens is you learn by example. When people go bankrupt, not only does that send a message to the person who went bankrupt, but to all the other people of what, what you don't do. Here's an example of what not to do. Because if you run your business like this, you can lose your business. You can go bankrupt. But what we're doing now is we're rewarding the people who were reckless by bailing them out. And then we're telling the people who weren't reckless, you were a bunch of chumps. Why were you saving for a rainy day? Just wait for the government to, to bail you out. We're going to do the same thing with the state governments. If we bail out all these states that should fail, not only are we sending the bad message to those states, keep acting irresponsibly, we're telling the responsible states, you're a bunch of morons. You guys are idiots for acting responsibly. Cut taxes, increase government spending. Because why should you be frugal? Because you're just going to be bailed out. We're going to just yeah. tax the other states uh, to cover your profligacy. Very weird. I mean, you saw Harvard took $8.55 million check themselves from uh, the bailout, and Lakers took $4.6 million. And then after a bunch of people talked smack to the Lakers, they gave the money back. And uh, they said, yeah, we, we don't need the money. Uh, by the way, 30 seconds. Uh, Peter, who were you in high school? If I was, uh, if I was in uh, high school with you, 16 years old, who was the 16-year-old Peter Schiff? Well, you know, I had, I, my father had a lot of influence on me as far as my thinking, Irwin Schiff, and understanding economics, Austrian economics, uh, Ayn Rand, you know, the, the Constitution. So I had a lot of uh, my political philosophy, even, even back then, just like my, own, my oldest son, who's now 17. You know, he's done a lot of reading, and because of me, I put him on the right uh, path, and then he's, you know, kind of traveled uh, pretty far down that path himself. So yeah, I, I, I've, I've had... Uh, my uh, political feelings and my economic understanding for almost my entire life. And so I do have a lot of respect for people who didn't have the advantage that I did of having a father like I had, because a lot of people start out when they're younger, uh, they're, they're very socialist, which is a natural thing to be, uh, you know, because you're, you're ruled by your emotions and you're caring and, and, and you don't have the real world experience to understand all of the negative consequences of all the well-intentioned uh, programs. So a lot of people start out as a liberal, start out socialist, and they have to learn. They have to evolve. They have to experience life and, and, and then get experience in, 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 in intellect and learn to realize that all the ideas they had when they were young were wrong. 
that they were well-intentioned, but wrong. Because intentions isn't what counts. It's the outcome. That's what liberals still don't understand, right? They, they can have a well-intentioned law like the minimum wage and not understand the unintended consequences of impoverishing the people that you're trying to help, of throwing people out of work, of making it impossible for non, you know, low-skilled people to get skills and earn more money. I mean, people can't, can't get behind. Yeah, but this guy is not earning enough money, so let's just, let's just pass a law so that he'll earn more and not understand the consequence of that law is that he earns less or he earns nothing. Uh, and, and so, but, so other people have had to uh, uh, make that evolution of thought, right? They started off over here and they had to come over here on their own. I, I started off here. I was already here. So I have more respect for people who had to make that journey, right? Who had to question what they once believed and overcome that, which, you know, and there's an old political saying, right? If you're not liberal by the time you're 22, you don't have a heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 28, you don't have a head. Uh, and, and, and those sayings, they're free. And, you know, and that's why a lot of people on the left think that conservatives or libertarians are mean, right? Because they just, they, they're just against these programs because they're mean. It's not that we're mean. It's that we understand that they don't work, that, they're, that they backfire. See, the liberals don't understand that. They actually think the programs work. So that's why conservatives don't think liberals are mean. They just think they're foolish. But liberals are convinced that conservatives are actually mean, bad people, that they want to deny all this government help. What we're denying is the problems that that help creates the dependency and the poverty that it perpetrates. The liberals just haven't had that epiphany yet. They, they never made that journey. They, they're kids like they never grew up. They're like little kids that believed in Santa Claus, and now they're adults, and they still believe. We're, uh, I love that part, by the way. We're at, and by the way, your, your father, the more I read about your father, your father's a very, very unique human being. You know, what he did and his level of conviction in certain areas, a lot of respect for that man. Uh, I can only imagine what it was like being around him and he's sharing his philosophies with you and his teachings with you. Uh, uh, I bet that he was, was a, he was a great guy, a patriotic guy, uh, really, you know, did what he thought was right for his country. And he paid uh, the ultimate price for that as dying as a political prisoner uh, in, 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 in the United States, which political prisoners do exist here. My father was one of them. Uh, he was in prison for his politics, not because he was a criminal. Uh, but yeah, his books live on, you know, you got his website, paynoincometax.com is still there. Uh, I have some of his books at shiftbooks.com. Some of his books you can download for free on the internet. You know, his book, The Federal Mafia, we still have copies of it uh, at Shift Books, but it was actually banned. It's the, there's only been two books in the history of America that were ever banned by the federal government. The first one was Fanny Hill, which was banned at 18 something for being pornographic. The next one was my father's book, The Federal Mafia. So it's a, I don't know if it'll ever make it on a trivial pursuit card, but uh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, but uh, Galileo said in 1600, he says the earth uh, revolves around the sun and they arrested him. So a lot of principles. Yes. My father used to point yeah. to Galileo a lot, not to equate himself to Galileo to say that I'm as smart as Galileo, but just the fact that when people would say, well, Erwin, you went to jail. Well, that doesn't mean he was wrong. He would say Galileo went to jail. He wasn't wrong just because the government put him in jail for saying yeah. something doesn't mean that what he was saying was wrong. And so my father said things that he believed were right. And I think many cases were right, but the government put him in jail for expressing those opinions. 
Uh, anyways, respect to your pops, man. It's good that the legacy continues on with you and you're pushing the envelope. I want to do a speed round with you. I'll give you a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. I'm going to give you a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Milton Friedman. He's a great economist, but I disagree with him on, uh, on, on money. Ronald Reagan. The first uh, president I voted for, uh, but I was very disappointed in him. Uh, in his, and I voted uh, libertarian. Uh, I voted for, I think it was Ron Paul. In, uh, when he ran for re-election, uh, because Reagan and I had a I had a poster of Ronald Reagan on my dorm room wall, wall as a freshman at Berkeley. He had you know in his cowboy hat and in Berkeley. I, you know I was a big Reagan guy. You know, uh, wow. and as a kid, I mean I, I love Reagan, um, but I was disappointed because Reagan promised to get rid of the Department of Energy, to the Department of Education, cut government spending, and he made the deal with Tip O'Neill. And government spending went up and the deficits went up. And that frustrated me back then. Uh, we got the tax cuts. That was the easy part. We didn't get the spending cuts. And initially, there was a deal that he made with Tip O'Neill. It was supposed to be $2 of, uh, of tax cuts for every dollar, uh, 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 of spending cuts, rather, you know, for the tax cuts. And we never got the spending cuts. So I was disappointed. But I, I'm, look, I, I still thought Reagan was a great man. And, I, you know, and he tried, but somehow he got to Washington and he got corrupted by that swamp. Alan Greenspan. Uh, he's, uh, he was the ace of spades in the deck that created the financial crisis. So I guess the word for him is traitor. That's the, the word I think of it because I really liked Greenspan as a, as, a, as a kid, you know, I mean, because Greenspan, he wrote that brilliant piece uh, in Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, uh, Golden Economic Freedom. And I still have, you can go to my website, uh, shift radio and i posted up there two letters that alan greenspan wrote me in 1987 when i was in my 20s see he had just become fed chairman in 87 and then we got the stock market crash in october and the first thing he did is he cut interest rates and i thought that wait a minute you're doing what you criticized the fed for doing in uh 1929 you're you're making the same mistakes right and so I wrote him a very nice letter and he wrote me back, you know, on, on the, the Fed, you know, the Fed sent me the letter. It was, you know, stamped, you know, because the Federal Reserve is not part of the government, right? So they have to pay for a stamp. It's not like a government agency. It's private. So they have to, they have to buy a stamp when they send you a letter. But it was his signature. He sent me a letter and he kind of explained why he was doing what he was doing. And I didn't, I didn't like the explanation, but I said, but, you know, and I, and I wrote back and then he wrote me again. But basically, what Greenspan said is, look, it's better to do this and cushion the blow in the short run than to let the market, you know, he basically, he basically laid out everything he was going to do uh, for his entire tenure, which was the long, as far as trying to ease the short-term pain. And, he, and, 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 and I knew it was a mistake. I knew as a you know, youngster that Greenspan was making a mistake. And I knew he knew it, too. And, and, you know, when you listen to Greenspan talk today, I mean, he sounds, you know, he's predicting stagflation like me. And that he was always saying the debts were too big and we're borrowing too much money, yet he enabled it. I mean, he was criticizing the deficits as he was the biggest enabler of the deficits by keeping rates artificially low uh, and trying to prop up and sustain and sustain bubbles. So I was very critical of Greenspan in my book. Uh, you know, I said he was the uh, the, the real architect of the housing bubble and the, uh, the, the primary reason that we had a financial crisis. Uh, Richard Nixon, one word. 
Um, well, I already used Trader, uh, you know, uh, you know, a disaster, uh, Keynes. I mean, he, he, I mean, he, he was the one that said we're, you know, we're all uh, Keynesians now. Uh, took us off the gold standard. Uh, you know, imposed wage and price controls. Terrible, terrible uh, policy. And you know, I mean, he, he was, you know, one of these, you know, Rockefeller Republicans. He represented everything that was wrong with the Republican Party that Ronald Reagan tried to fix. Um, you know, and, 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 and the reason that we got Reagan was because Carter was such a disaster, but Carter simply expanded the policies that he inherited, uh, uh, from Nixon. Um, and, and Nixon just expanded on, on, on what was happening under Johnson. And, you know, so it was a perpetuation of that, of that type of economy. And Reagan took us away from that for a while. So, uh, but yeah, no, he was a bad Republican. He helped give Republicans a bad name. Uh, and, 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 you know, took us off the gold standard, which again was one of the worst uh, political decisions that was made. And by the way, my father, my father testified in the Senate in 1968 against, uh, going off the gold standard and, you know, the secretary of the treasury and the secretary of the Tre federal reserve or the, or the, or the chairman of the federal reserve testified in favor of it. And they said that if we went off the gold standard, the dollar would rise in value and the price of gold would fall. My father said that the opposite would happen, that the dollar would lose value, the price of gold would go up and inflation would surge, right? My dad was the only one that was right. He knew exactly what would happen if we went off the gold standard and the secretary of the treasury and the chairman of the Federal Reserve were 100% wrong. So at least we have that consistency because now the current secretary of the treasury and the Fed chairman are 100% wrong and my father's son is out there sounding the alarm on what, on what the real consequences of these policy mistakes are going to be. So Frederick Hayek. And my father did what you, my father was an insurance agent. He, he went to Congress. I'll give you more now. Yeah, he was insurance. And see, this is the reason my father understood money because my father went to Congress and said, I sell money for future delivery. People are buying insurance policies for me where they're paying premiums today to collect benefits tomorrow. And therefore, the value of money is very important to my business because I'm selling money for the future. And so what it buys, its purchasing power is very important. And that's why he didn't want going off the gold standard because his customers, his clients were paying premiums in gold. He didn't want them being paid benefits in paper because he didn't know what the paper was going to be worth. He knew it. It would depreciate, which is exactly what happened. One word, Frederick Hayek. He's a great man. Okay. Ludwig uh, great von economist. Mises. Ludwig von Mises. Same thing. Brilliant, brilliant man. Michael Burry. Well, you know, uh, you know, I did the, you know, I mean, he's a smart guy too. Uh, you know, I had the same trade on as Mike. I didn't get as much uh, recognition. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't, I, you know, uh, so I think, he, I think he's a good guy too, you know, and uh, I like him. Uh, but, you know, I, I, it would have been nice if, you know, a little bit more people in the mainstream would have recognized, uh, you know, my understanding of, um, of the housing bubble. You needed a movie. You needed a movie. Yeah, you yeah. I didn't movie. get, you know, I didn't get I didn't get in a book. I didn't get in a movie. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I was there. I mean, you know, I think I was the one giving the lecture. He, you know, you, you watch the movie. He attends. I was giving the lectures about the housing bubble. 
I was writing articles in 2002, three, four, five, writing about the bubble, writing about the mortgage market, writing about securitization, writing about subprime, saying it was going to collapse, it was going to implode, it was a bubble. I was the guy trying to convince everybody. I remember that. That, 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 that. So, it, it, you know, I didn't get convinced. I was the one, for all I know, he, 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 he heard me. I don't know how he eventually, how he's initially got on. He's, he's, I was, I was he's an interesting guy, by the way. sending out hundreds of emails to all the newspapers for yeah. years. Again, watch that mortgage banker speech on YouTube in 2006, and I and I was at that convention in 2005 too. I wish I wish I had that on tape. They don't have that one. I have the 06 one, but I told the same story in 2005 about the I write a script, let somebody do the movie. <laughs> this Michael guy's a low key guy who can't stand the camera, and he got the movie. Jerome Powell. Well, he's another disaster. I mean, you know. Um, he he's, he's maybe he's the fall guy. I don't know. This could be the it, it all all comes down. I mean, Yellen got out of Dodge. Bernanke got out of Dodge. You know, Greenspan, Minuchin. Well, I mean, he he he's another one. He's another fraud. I mean, Art, you know, Laffer, Arthur Laffer, my penny. I just think the penny he owes me. AOC. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, it's not just the Laffer curve on that napkin. Of course, you think of that. But I just think of the the the, the fact that he that he welched on that that. And that he doesn't want to acknowledge, you know, he still doesn't want to admit that he lost uh, because he, see, Laffer was too partisan when Bush was president to recognize that we had a bubble. And that's the mistake a lot of Republicans make. They think if there's a Republican president who's cut taxes, they have to pretend that the economy is great. They can't tell the truth that the economy is a bubble. Uh, but I, as I was warning people back then, when the bubble pops, then you have no credibility. If you're a cheerleader for the bubble because there's a Republican president, then what do you do when it pops? You know, and that's the problem now with Trump. I mean, I, I voted for Trump. I told people that he, to vote for him over, over Clinton, but I was very critical of him the minute he started making mistakes. I didn't want to look the other way just because he was a Republican and not a Democrat and pretend that he was doing good things when he was doing bad things. And hey, we'll pretend hey, we had a great economy when we just had a bigger bubble. AOC. <laughs> America's future, hopefully not, but uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, she, she just epitomizes everything that's wrong with this country. And it's the reason why we're not supposed to be a democracy. If you want to know why the founding fathers created America as a republic and not a democracy, AOC. Ray Dalio. Oh, well, you know, he, he's a smart guy, a very wealthy guy. Uh, you know, one of my neighbors in, uh, in Connecticut. Uh, but yeah, no, he's uh, you know I, I I agree with a lot of what Ray says, but then there you know there 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 are things where we disagree. I mean, I'm, I'm we're not friendly, but I, I know I know him. Are you by the way? Are you related to Adam Schiff or no? You guys are not related. No, no, no. In fact, I, okay. I joked that I I gotta have to change my name. You know, it's like he's really he's really screwing up the name Schiff. You know. Yeah. They're, they're, but, they're, and uh, I'm not related to Jacob Schiff either, the banker. A lot of people assume that I'm related to. Although coincidentally, my grandfather's name was Jacob Schiff. But it was Jacob Schiff, the carpenter, not Jacob Schiff, uh, the banker. I mean, I would have loved to have inherited some of that Schiff money. Uh, you know, my, my, my branch of the Schiff family uh, wasn't that successful. Uh, you know, well, you uh, inherited a good part of the, 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 the Schiff mindset, your, your pop's mindset. Well, I learned that. Yeah, you yeah. don't just get that by osmosis. Yeah. My yeah. dad had to, had to teach me stuff. But, I, I mean, once your mind is open, I mean, it's amazing how much you can learn once you're, when you're not brainwashed. I mean, the problem is we send these kids through these government schools 
And so by the time they're 22, they've been so thoroughly brainwashed, you know, that it's so hard for them. I mean, even their common sense is gone by the time they graduate. So not only are these college degrees, you know, so expensive, they're so completely worthless because you end up graduating knowing less than you knew before you enrolled. So, uh, uh, Peter, are you still, a, would you consider yourself a betting man? I'm not a big gambler. I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean. Are you, are you I, willing you know, to bet an ounce no, of gold? I, 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 I enjoy uh, uh, gambling, you know, but. Are you I'm willing to bet an ounce of gold? You, you said 70 to 80% Biden. Yeah, I think, I think Biden is probably going to win. Uh, you know, do I, I mean, would I be willing to bet an ounce of gold? I think the odds are in my favor, but they're not so overwhelming in my favor that it's like, ah, you know, this is the best bet I want to make with an ounce of gold. I've got various ounce of gold bets going around here and there. I collected on one just recently from a conference I did where I, we, we made a bet of an ounce of gold in January of 2019. And I bet the next move the Fed would make would be a rate cut. And the other guy bet a rate hike. And of course, everybody thought he was going to win. And I ended up winning because the Fed cut. Is this a bet you're willing to make in this area or no? This is not too high. I mean, I can make it with you. I mean, it's only an ounce of gold. I, you know, but the thing is, though, I hope, here's the problem. I would rather see Trump win. So I, I, hate, to, I hate to make a bet and then like hope to win it. You know what I mean? Because I, I, I just kinda, think, I just think I, 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 even though I know it's going to be difficult if Trump wins, even though I know that it's going to implode around him, it's just that Donald Trump, for all the mistakes he's made and all the things he's done wrong, he still has a better chance of eventually doing the right thing than, 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 um, than, than uh, Biden or whoever's going to control Biden. I mean, if Biden's I, I, the next president, let's face it, he's not the president. He's just, tell you one he's thing, just though, a mouthpiece. Of course, Somebody's going to be pulling course. those strings. But he can't sell. You, you need charisma nowadays. Once the camera came out, you need charisma. Like if Cuomo was out there, Andrew Cuomo was out there. Be a different story because he knows how to sell and command present. Peter, thank you for being a guest. And if you uh, uh, want to follow some of his content, make sure you go follow him. That he's got a YouTube channel as well. You can yeah, see people I, there too. The, yeah, the Shift Report on YouTube or Shift Radio uh, for my podcast. My listeners have been growing, uh, but you know I need you know more and more people to listen. I've been saying that since the coronavirus. Uh, has come on the scene that the only thing spreading faster than that virus is economic and financial ignorance. And you're helping uh, to do something about that. I think I got the anecdote, the cure for uh, that ig ignorance. And so the mainstream media has got everything wrong. Everything the government is doing is wrong. Everything the Federal Reserve is doing. If they only would do the George Costanza uh, and just do the opposite, you know, we would be in much better shape instead of they're doing what they think is right. But I'm, I'm coming out there and doing these podcasts and, and, and talking about what's happening in the financial markets, in the economy, and, and, and telling the truth about it and, and kind of unspinning uh, what, what the nonsense that people are getting on a daily basis now. I think uh, you got to keep doing it. I think you got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it more because there's many other audiences that need to keep hearing you. Peter, again, Thanks for being a guest. Thanks for coming out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.